This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you will get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 578 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show B.C. Sanders. Now, BC is an author for Skillset Magazine, but he is also a veteran law enforcement officer spending a majority of his career in the gang unit. So we discuss a host of topics from his straight-edge upbringing in the skater and punk world through to his incredible perspective on the world of gangs and drugs and everything in between. Before we get to this amazing conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you BC Sanders. Enjoy. Well, BC, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me on. So um, I am intrigued. You know, we we uh, interacted on social media for a while. Um, as I learn more about you, you know, you've got a pretty uh, interesting military and law enforcement story. You're a writer, um, and some of the the figures that you've written about are incredible. So I'm really looking forward to to exploring that. Um, very, very first question, roughly, because you are undercover, roughly, uh, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? <laughs> yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm based basically in the southern states in the U.S., so you can tell from my accent that, that I was born and raised in the south. I've traveled a little bit outside of the south, but for the most part, spent uh, my time here, and that's where uh, I'm in law enforcement as well. Beautiful. Now, I will open the door for this again, you know, understanding the, the nature of your business. You go wherever you'd like. But tell me a little bit about your family dynamic. Yeah. So I was born into uh, kind of the nuclear family of a, a father, mother, and an older brother. And around by the time I was five or six, uh, my mom and dad split up. So from then on, it was my mom raising two boys. And we got into uh, punk rock, skateboarding, you know, uh, some hardcore uh, music and just going to shows and stuff. So growing up, there was a lot of stuff that I was um, exposed to, uh, people using drugs and selling drugs and a lot of fights. Uh, but also being, you know, growing up with a really good core group of friends, uh, cousins and my older brother that we all just kind of stuck together. Uh, and that that kind of got me looking at what I want to do in life. Do I want to kind of hang out or do I want to kind of get focused and get into something? And so luckily for me, I had interest in the military uh, and eventually just signed up and joined the Army when I was 17. So coming right out of high school, graduated and went right into basic training and just spent four years in an infantry unit um, and enjoyed that. And then that kind of uh, 
established kind of my work ethic and my discipline and then got out and went to college and got a psychology degree, which is a little different than a lot of people who want to be cops. They go the criminal justice route and I'm not knocking that, but I would say for anyone out there who's looking to get into law enforcement or even transition from whatever job they're in now and get into it, uh, if they're doing a career or doing a college degree to focus on something that they can actually use. And, and what I'm saying is a criminal justice degree is just what you're going to learn in a police academy. If you get a psychology degree, sociology, foreign language would be phenomenal or any kind of foreign uh, cultural studies, something like that that can translate into the uh, into police work where you're dealing with people day in and day out. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because the go-to in the fire service is called fire science and it's all mm-hmm. the administration clerical classes that mm-hmm. would be great if, you know, paper clips are your best friend, but if you actually want to be a, <laughs> <laughs> right, a right. higher functioning, you know, member of the fire mm-hmm. ground itself, um, you know, there are so many other areas, whether it's the kind of, you know, exercise physiology side or um, in engineering. I mean, there's so many different kind of branches that, as you said, would would really make us better our job and get away from that kind of clerical HR admin thing that everyone gets dragged down into, which I'm sure is just absolutely brain destroying as well. <laughs> yeah, I, w- I would say, uh, I don't know whether psychology is is pushed a lot in the, in the fire side or not, but I mean, you're still dealing with human beings. You know what I mean? Either as a supervisor, coworker, or with the public, whenever you're rescuing them or going out to call. So uh, historically, that was always looked at. It seems like in our fields, you know, first responders that, that psychology was not, like I was made fun of going through the police academy when they found out I had a psych degree. But I kind of thought was to study human behavior and we're dealing with human beings. Why would I not do that? I don't know. I just, I don't know. I think, I think it's, it, it needs to be tapped into, put it that way. I think there's a lot of, it's the way we've always done it. I always point at the, the fire service at the helmets. Like they will, some people, some people probably with tiny, tiny penises are so <laughs> dead set on shaming the European fire service for their helmets, which are better. But they right. don't look like Kurt Russell from Buck Backdraft, so you can't, right. you know, yeah. you can't. Yeah. I'm just, I'll leave it there. But anyway, it's about vanity <laughs> rather than functional, you know. So, yeah. you know, there's a certain point where we have to take a step back and go, look, I get it. This was part of the way we did it, and at that point, at that point, it was amazing. But there are mm-hmm. things out there that may be a better way of doing that. That a you should accept, and b you certainly shouldn't ridicule while you're wearing your, for example, 1930s hat. <laughs> oh yeah yeah a hundred you're right like that's what when when i first got on that's what people basically said was you're kind of being too nice to people they're going to take advantage of you and my logic was no i've been on the receiving end of <laughs> we'll just say unprofessional police service and it wasn't that way you know and a lot of people are not that way but, but if you go heavy-handed you're going to create an enemy from that person whereas you can show as as much respect and leniency and actually understanding that probably that's going to diffuse your situations. And actually you'll have less uses of force and still recover just as many firearms, arrest just as many gang members and not have to get into a use of force because you're not letting that ego, you know what I mean? Kind of dictate or come in because the old generation told you, you got to be heavy handed. And that's that those days are long gone. Like that is not the culture. Now that was maybe 20 years ago or even longer, but not now. 
Yeah. Well, I think it's the same with, with the fire service, you know, this kind of facade of, like I said, you know, leather helmet, big mustache, manly man, I'm not scared. When <laughs> you take a, take a step back, it was the kindness and compassion and human element that drew us into these professions. So then yeah. you put the uniform on and all of a sudden you're this two-dimensional, you know, tactical guru or, you know, firefighting wizard. And you forget that you're a human being that just happens to wear that uniform and the way you interact with other human beings dictates the outcome of that interaction. Yeah, 100%. All right. So going back to um, skateboarding and punk rock. So I've heard one of two things. Obviously, there's there's people that have found themselves in that space and then there's a story alongside it that might be you know, alcohol, drugs, that kind of thing. But then I also hear a parallel one of the straight edge um, kind mm-hmm. of scene where it was the polar opposite, where they actually held themselves to a very, very high standard. So kind of which which route did you find yourself down? Yeah, yeah. It, I, I'll, I tell this story a lot to people. Uh, and you're right, there's, there's kind of a split path and you have um, the choice to go down the drug route and alcohol route or straight edge. I chose the straight edge route and I was pretty much the, the only person that kind of stuck with that path. And it first started off with an interest in uh, a band called minor threat that I, that I heard when I was like 10 years old and just fell in love with it. I love the sound of it, the energy of it. And then when I was reading the lyrics, I'm like, Oh wow, they're actually not talking about getting drunk or, you know, doing drugs or tearing up your scene or even, uh, you know, like a nihilistic um, type of approach. They were more about how do you clean it up? How do you, uh, enlighten yourself. How do you learn more? So I was drawn to that. And I've been that way my whole life. Now that doesn't mean I put X's on my fist, you know, like, you know, kids would back in the day or tell someone you have to be the same way I am. And that when you, you drink or when you smoke, it's bad. And I hate you and all that. Like there's a whole militant side of straight edge that people can research and it, it can get really, really bad. And even deadly where people have murdered other people over this type of stuff. Those are the extremes of anything, right? Same thing with people can probably just use rec- recreational alcohol or marijuana or whatever, and they don't go out there and rob, you know, stores and businesses. But for me, it was it was staying focused on myself, not trying to tell everybody else how to live, just just doing my own thing, and always staying kind of in that hardcore music scene and listening to those bands. And I still listen to bands now. I still go to shows, um, and I still get a lot of energy from that. And so anytime someone talks about that, you know, those choices we make when we were young, that was like probably one of the more important ones that I started going down that path because then as I got older, you know, 15, 16, sometimes even younger, someone's, you know, smoking weed and they may go, hey, you want to hit the bong or whatever back then? I'm like, nah, I'm, I'm good. I'll still sit in the same room with you and we'll watch Beavis and Butthead and play Sepultura or some band, you know, but I'm not going to, I'm cool. I don't want to do that. And believe it or not, it wasn't like an after-school special where everybody's like, no, dude, you got to smoke weed to be cool. It was almost like, cool, this guy's not going to smoke my weed. I was just being nice and offering. You know? <laughs> puff, so puff, it was like, we could myself. all, yeah, yeah. It was like kind of like, yeah, yeah, let, let him hang out because he's not going to smoke all our weed or, you know, drink up all our beer. So, and, and like I said earlier, I was fortunate to be able to hang out with so many different types of people and not get in this small circle that only believes in, one type of thing. I mean, I had a, a friend when I was uh, a teenager in high school, he was doing home invasions on drug dealers. So he knew an older guy who would basically sell large amounts of certain products. And he was one of the first meth dealers 
in our area in the South. You know, we're going back to the, the early 90s. And, and at that time, this guy would do these sales and then tell these two younger guys where the houses are, the dealers that he just sold to. And, and if he knew if he had the intel of where they stashed their stuff in the house, he would tell these two young guys, hey, hit this house, get my stash back, and we'll all sell it and make profit, right? He gave them weapons. So this guy's a friend of mine. Like We're hanging out every day. I know he's got money. He's wanting to spend it with me. I'm like, dude, I don't want any of that money. I'm not asking any questions. You do what you want to do, but I, I'm cool. I don't want to mess with that. Well, he ends up getting arrested and goes and does, uh, I think it's like three years as a, as a juvenile before he was ever uh, old enough to be an adult. Um, and he told me about how the whole operation went down, how he got caught and what he felt. And I even uh, went and picked him up the day he got released from the juvenile correctional facility. So he did, he did probably about a year and a half, two years, something like that. But I had to borrow a car, go pick him up. You know, we went and to a Hardy's restaurant and he just laid everything out. Like he didn't want to tell me before because there was a chance they dropped the <laughs> charges. So he never wanted to admit to anything. But after he did his time, he's like, man, this is how stupid I was. This, these are all the things I did. And at that young age, I'm like, damn, like how, how does someone decide to do that? And then come over here and we shoot ball or we hang out. And he's the nicest dude in the world to everybody else. But he just put a, a double barrel shotgun in a dude's face into the home invasion. You know, you know, it just, it didn't translate to me. So I was a little older and then I could see when someone is your threat, you act completely different. You know what I you know, like, like that was considered his threat. He did what he had to do, stole the money or stole the drugs. And they did multiple home invasions. That was just the one he got caught at. Um, but it was one, it was like an eye opener for me at that time to be like, okay, it's all about decisions. And, and I can shoot ball with this guy. He can spend a night at the house. He can hang out with us. We can go, go to clubs and stuff, but I'm just not going down that path with him. You know, and now as adults, sadly, he's he's probably lived a pretty rough life because he makes some really bad decisions. But just to be exposed to that at a young age. But luckily, my brain was kind of wired differently to go, okay, I can be around someone like this and hang out with them, but not want to be in part part of that lifestyle, but still be able to learn from that. So, I mean, I've been in hotel parties where drugs are being sold and people are buying you know different types of drugs and stuff. It just it wasn't. That wasn't my scene, but I like everybody. You know, I'm a social person. So I never judged that way. I just thought, you know, it's it's kind of sad people get hooked up in that in that lifestyle. Or I see as we all grew up or as as we got older and I met other people and you see how bad or how how they can destroy their lives starting out, you know, drinking beer at the beach during spring break to then 20 years later, they could be, you know, alcoholics and have lost everything. So for me, it was just don't ever start down that path and I won't have to worry about it. And if anybody ever wants encouragement or help, I would always be there for them. You know, and just be like, yeah, cool. You don't drink or I don't drink. Yo, you know, we, we can sit in the corner and laugh at everybody else or whatever, you know, whatever's going on. Now, when you look back, because you did have, you know, a divorce in, in your background, you know, what was it do you think that fostered that mentality when it's so easy for young men and women to find themselves drinking or, you know, experimenting with drugs in their teens? Yeah, it's um, like I said, I, I think that one, if if when I was a kid, I did not see the things that I saw, like some of the negative stuff from the drugs or the alcohol, everything were were to be just this party and everybody's laughing and having fun like it's a John Hughes movie in the 1980s or something. I probably would have been like, oh, well, drugs aren't that bad or alcohol's not that bad. But at a young age, I did see a lot of the negative side of it. 
I did have an uncle who was one of the most arrested individuals in the same city that I work in, you know, so, and he's not a bad guy. He wasn't a bad guy. He's passed away since then. He battled addiction. He battled uh, some mental, mental issues that he probably didn't get help for. Um, so, I mean, just seeing things like that. And when I would go see bands play at the local clubs, you know, I would have to pass him sometimes as he's out there panhandling and asking for money. And so intoxicated, he doesn't even recognize me. And so, I mean, he's my uncle, he's my dad's younger brother. And I mean, it wasn't like he didn't know me. We would spend time together. If he wasn't locked up or if he wasn't on the street, he would kind of cycle through. Sometimes he could stay sober, stress of life would get to him. And then he would fall off the wagon, as we say in the South and, and he would get back on the street, you know? And so I could have very open conversations with him throughout life about why he did what he did and how he ended up that way. Um, so when I was very young, I saw those polar or those extreme um, examples of, wow, if I start drinking now, this could be my life in 20 years, you know, or, Hey, if I do, yeah, they're chopping up a, a rail or a line of Coke. Uh, if I do that now, you know, maybe it's fun for a few years, but then that may transition into crack, you know, back then that was the, you know, so I, I don't know whether it's hard wiring, if it's the frontal frontal lobe, you know, and my brain was maybe developing a little quicker than other people. So maybe I was thinking more long-term at the age of like 15 to 17 than a lot of people are. Cause we know the frontal lobe develops a little later in life, but for whatever reason, I just, I saw things in how it's going to affect me in the future. So I re- that was kind of like, you know, my wake up call, like, Hey, I don't want to go down that path. Plus it's kind of cool when I'm putting on, you know, bands like youth of the day or gorilla biscuits, you know, and they're singing about staying positive and, just trying to live a good life. So, I mean, for me, it was, it was kind of like, like a soundtrack to my high school days of, okay, here's some positive music that's reinforcing me making these decisions. And I, and I hope this works out for me. And now, you know, a couple of decades later, I'm still listening to that music. We're still talking about decisions being made, you know, and I have to say that's probably one of the best decisions in my life is that I didn't go down that path, you know, and I still stay healthy and stay active. And uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm thankful for that. Well, it reminds me a lot of uh, hip hop. I was big into that when I was, I still am to this day, you know, and it was funny because I'd be in my uh, like 17, 18 year old in this little Mr. Bean mini and hear this <laughs> hip hop coming around the corner and then be me, not very gangster <laughs> yeah. whatsoever, yeah. a farm boy from England, but I loved it. But some of the ones I really connected with were some of the public enemy stuff, yes. um, but then yes. also like Tribe Called Quest and you know, just some mm-hmm. of the, the positive ones. Yes, there are areas where, I mean, everyone struggles everyone struggles and i get the echo chamber that you might be in south central in you know the 1980s or 90s it's a different world than you know a a son of a veterinarian and a farm in england but out of that can either become negativity you know and fuck the police and cop killer and all these things that i talked about in this little video today or it can be you know the positive like get yourself out of that you know you can control your life and it's it's interesting how music can can inspire or it can just perpetuate the violence that's already there. Yeah. Or or you, you said something that a lot of people gloss over, but like on the corner, when I, when I'm talking to guys and especially like younger guys are getting the gangs and they talk about wanting to cut a record or, you know, cut a track on some mixtape, I'll listen to what they're doing. And, 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 you know, I know I'm older than them, obviously. So when I'm listening to it, I'm putting it through that filter and I'm like, you know, everybody else is doing this and everything that, that you're rapping about is selling drugs, you know, being derogatory to women, boosting your, yourself up, you know, 
when if you go back and and look at hip hop when it first started, it did parallel the punk rock scene. It was like you said, Public Enemy, uh, Tribe Called Quest, De La Soul. You know, you, you get into all these different realms of some stuff is more enlightening and, and a little softer to the ear. You get into Public Enemy there to where very quickly it seemed like mainstream wanted to label them as racist. And, and I don't want to get all down in that path with Professor Griff and what was going on back then. But I'll tell you that listening to Public Enemy when I was a kid was the same way I felt about punk rock because it would turn on different parts of my brain to where I'm like, damn, I never looked at it from that perspective or, okay, yeah, hey, this guy sees serving the military very different than maybe I do because his perspective is different, you know, and he's looking at it through a filter of maybe what his uncles and and cousins and brothers or whatever have, have experienced in his family. Public Enemy, by far, I tell people all the time, you still can listen to it today. It's still applicable. You know, Chuck D and them were talking about burn Hollywood burn back then. And now you look at it and hey, have we changed as a society? Has Hollywood changed? You know, maybe it has, maybe it hasn't. Uh, Boogie Down Productions. So when I go back, I KRS one, I tell people all the time, they're like, how do you know all this about history? Like, cause I started reading history when I was in high school, not what was going on in class. I was not a very locked in student in high school. I really did not care what was going on in the classroom because I kind of knew I'm going in the army. You know, I got my, listen to my music. I'm hanging out with my friends. I just want to go in the army. I don't really care about algebra and all this other stuff. And history class wasn't always the history that I wanted to read about. Like <laughs> they say like his story, not history, right? Like his story. But so I started reading a lot of now, I guess what is kind of touted as black history, but I just look at it as history. Like what's going on in America and all these different facets of history that we never get to hear about, you know, unless we unless we dig for it, right? So Boogie Down Productions, like Karis One, and they had a, a song like You Must Learn, right? That was the name of the song. So I always tell people, like, you go back and listen to it, and it's just a history lesson. Like, bam, bam, like, like you know, all, all these things are hitting you at one time where a kid now could hear that and go, oh, maybe this isn't the same as trap music or whatever. It's like it's completely different to a young kid's ear. However, the message is, this is about enlightenment. This is about, you know, understanding the world around you, understanding society, the, the things that have gone on in history that we should be celebrating. You should be taking pride in, in all of these different facets and not forgetting it, not letting history become history. You know what I mean? Like, like let's, let's stay plugged in with it. And I, so I'm always looking for, you know, bands or musicians or anybody that's bringing that back, that enlightenment back. I don't want to hear gangster rap where it's all just violence. And now if someone is telling their story, you know, that's cool. You can go back and listen to Eric being rock him. And he's talking about, I used to be a stick up kid, right? <laughs> Until I thought all the devious things I did. So he's not saying, oh yeah, it's cool to go rob people and keep robbing people for the rest of your life. No, he's saying, Hey, here's a path, but you got to change it at some point. You know, you have to, to grow up. You have to, do something to help society and help the people around you, not always consuming and not always contributing to that cycle. So I think somewhere along the lines, it switched very quickly when record companies learned they can make so much money off gangster rap and like it's NWA clickbait. and stuff. Music yeah, clickbait. yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, the gangster rap of, of, of the late eighties, early nineties was the equivalent of, heavy metals, devil worshiping bands. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, record labels realized, oh, you know, put a pentagram on a record and we're going to sell a million. 
you know, put some lyrics on there talking about drugs and gangs and all that, and let's hype it up. Let's make it more violent, more. And it becomes like almost like a stereotype. So like I said, if you're telling a story that actually happened or you're telling a story that it's a cautionary tale, yeah, do it. But don't, to me, this is my personal opinion, don't glorify it to where people that are listening to it say, yeah, this is how I'm supposed to act. I am supposed to mimic this. I am supposed to slap women. You know, I am supposed to learn to drug trade or uh, entertainment because that's the only way I can make legitimate money, which is absolutely crazy, right? I mean, we know drug dealers don't make millions of dollars on average, right? <laughs> they got to no. they got to move up the chain, and they just don't survive that way. It's a pyramid but, scheme. Oh, the worst of the worst. But yeah, I, it's funny that you had mentioned that about music, just because I'm very passionate about it. And, I, and when I talk to especially younger people, I'm always interested in what they're listening to because I know at that age, that is what influenced me a lot. You know, and if I could listen to something. And someone kind of mentioned something like, oh, man, I want to I want to learn more about that or I want to read more about that or just, hey, I, you know, I go see a band player, go see a show and meet other people who are who are in the same way. So like now, as as an adult, I'll go see a band play like I want to go see this band H2O play in another state. I drove like four and a half, five hours away to go see this band play. Nicest guys in the world. You know, you can just talk, hang out with them. And in the crowd, I'm talking to another dude, complete stranger fully tatted up sleeves. I mean, like if, you know, somebody saw him, they would, the stereotype, oh, he's a terrible guy or whatever, right? He's just up to no good. And he is a principal of a school. And he grew up the same way I did. He had gone into military, then went to college, got into teaching and was passionate, was like, hey, I got to live a life that matters. So here we are, you know, the two of us talking at this show and laughing and joking, like who would have ever thought, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, that we would be in these positions of influence in these fields that maybe as kids, we didn't like, like as, as a kid, he may not have liked being a student, but you know, through the military, he grew up, went to college and there we are at H2O talking about how great this band is, how they still matter to us, you know, how the music is so great. Uh, and there's a lot to be said for that. That's, you know, I think it's very powerful. And I think that people should tap into that and not disregard it, especially the older we get, you know, these adults out here and parents, they need to really pay attention to that as well. I mean, not, you know, yeah. Well, I think it's, it's again about the opportunity to bring us together. So obviously that music brought you guys together. You know, you think of, uh, you know, Biggie and Tupac, you know, you, you have two musicians that actually had pretty impressive messages, but there was also that kind of division. And then what happened? They're both dead. Look at DMX. Yeah. You know, the addiction yeah. that was underlying there is what killed him. I mean, these are tragedies. You know, this isn't anything that we should glorify. And even, you know, what when I've talked about this a lot, like, for example, let's take Ice Cube. You know, Fuck the Police was a huge hit. Mm -hmm. And now he makes his life portraying police officers on film. Where's that yeah. discussion? Yeah. Where's the, hey, back then, this is what we felt. This is what we were seeing in Compton. This is our perception of the police. But here's how I've evolved. Eminem, there's a lot of very homophobic lyrics in his work and now he's duetting with with elton john talk to us about right. that journey you know educate yeah. the people that follow your music so that you can kind of take away some of that fictionalized facade that you had when you first came on the scene and then how you've matured and how you can then go back to the community and go look this is what we were seeing this is what we were thinking but this is what i found like 
most of these people are people just like us and, and we have so much in common. And yes, there are a few cops that, you know, are bad apples. And yes, I sure as hell know some gang members that are bad apples, but the rest of us are just trying to, you know, just trying to survive in this world and, and you know, move forward together. Yeah. Yeah. You, when you brought that up, like one of the things that for me was, was Ice-T when he started Body Count, you know, this was in whatever, early 90s. And a lot of people are like, oh, wow, you know, Ice-T's kind of crossing over from, from hip hop and being with the syndicate or whatever into body count. It's like, no, dude, like that guy's always been a metalhead. Like he was always listening to heavy metal. It's like he, he's, he's not just this one type of music. Like he can cross over. He can do these things. When Cop Killer came out, when that song came out back then in the early 90s, and I can remember seeing it on the news, you know, everybody's losing their minds about like, oh, my God, you know. But when you hear that song, the message I took back then anyway was that, and I'm not, obviously, I'm not advocating violence towards cops. So let me put that out there. I mean, that, that would be asinine. What I am saying, though, is if somebody has moved so much to create a song, and I don't believe that Ice-T sat down and wrote that song to try to make millions of dollars. I think he wrote that song because that's how a lot of people felt. And I believe that that song was about very direct interactions with, with negative, abusive cops, right? So if you witness it or you see it and you don't know any other aspect from police, then you may think that, or it can be once again, like a cautionary tale of you keep abusing people and you're going to abuse the wrong person. Who's going to say, I've had enough. I'm going to snap. And this is what I'm going to do. Right. I, I, I am a cop, right? I, this job is like, you, you can't just wake up one day and go, oh, I just want to be a cop and just kind of get through the day. Like you have to be plugged in. You have to train hard. You have to care about what you're doing. And to, to, to listen to that song, learn something from it. Understand that our interactions every day are judged, especially if we're in uniform, that people can watch it that we never interact with, but they may think that interaction was too heavy handed, you know, or that, or that officer should not have tased that person and done whatever. So, so that song, Cop Killer, to me, even when I was a kid in high school, was like, okay, yeah, I get it. And I even understood that aspect because, one, you could see it at the old punk rock shows when cops would start harassing people and stuff. You know, I've been frisked and pushed up against the wall and had no clue why I was being frisked or what was going on. Right. And that, so that, that to me was like, okay, I, I don't understand what's going on here. Why is this happening? Right. Because we weren't doing anything wrong. Also, when you have something going on back in the 80s, you had a band called MDC, Millions of Dead Cops, right? And then other records they would do is like multi-death corporations. They were always doing different meanings for the, the acronym of the band. They had a record. It was basically like blue by day, white by night. And it was a picture of one half of the picture is a police officer's face. It's like a split image. And the other half is a Klansman, right? Like a Klansman with a big white hood on. So even as a kid, man, I was in probably middle school the first time I saw that record. And, and my buddy, actually, my brother stenciled millions of dead cops on my buddy's leather jacket on the back of it. But it, it, I didn't like that image. I didn't like that idea because it didn't make sense to me. Like, cops can't be Klansmen. Like, that, the, like it, it, it didn't, it, I didn't understand what they were trying to say. But I knew it was so severe and so shocking that I didn't want to see a bunch of cops die. I didn't want people to die. But I, but I always thought about what was the perspective that that band went through or witnessed 
in order to feel compelled to to name a record or name their band that do you know what i'm saying like it there has to be something going on um and once again they were not making millions millions of dollars this is a punk rock band that was well <clears throat> well known throughout the scene but they were not making millions of dollars they didn't have a a hit video on MTV or anything. So you have to ask yourself, like, what, what went on? So I would probably say, yeah, there was probably a lot of a police abuse that they witnessed and they just started getting um, bitter about it and, and started getting mad. I think now in today's society, enough people get interactions with police that, or, you, you know, honest interactions, not some watching, you know, 30 minutes of YouTube clips that are only 10 seconds long, but to have real interactions with police and to understand, oh, wow, these are stereotypes just like anything else, you know. So if you stereotype police as being these racist robots, well, how could, you know, whatever, uh, you know, how, how can that apply to every type of cop? Well, it, it doesn't. You know, not every cop could be a Klansman, you know, blue by day, white by night or whatever. So even back then, those were stereotypes. But for me at a young age, it was like, I don't. I don't want to, I don't want it to be that bad. Like that's, that's crazy. But you have to, as an adult, think what type of things people went through or were witnessed to, to push such violence on an entire profession. Right. So I think we can always learn from something like that, not shut it down, not cancel it, you know, because remember, you know, in the nineties, there was a huge protest against body count where cops will go out there with, you know, like, like picket signs and, and not warning people, to buy the record and, and trying to basically cancel someone's potentially their first amendment rights. So, and that was, you know, maybe like my freshman year or something in high school, I was young, but even to see that, I thought there's something going on here. You know, this is, this is kind of crazy that, you know, we're not learning from that. We're, we're trying to shut things down as opposed to just saying, can't we just be better, <laughs> better at what we do and not, and not make someone so mad or do something so egregious that, uh, someone either loses their life or uh, you know, ends up in the hospital because someone's heavy-handed or does a use of force that that is you know goes into the realm of criminal activity and not you know protected. Yeah, well, with the the council culture element, I, part of the thing that I made today was there's a big push to get Joe Rogan off Spotify, you know, and I don't agree with some of the things he says, like I'm so sick of hearing about ivermectin, for example, <laughs> right. but, uh, you know, I wish we could hear about health and, you know, fitness and nutrition instead of all that. But regardless, you know, Spotify has Michael Jackson on there, you know, all his, all his albums. And I'm pretty sure he was sleeping with children. You know <laughs> well, what I mean? That, those were the allegations. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And even if they, you know, whether anything happened, he was definitely mm -hmm. sleeping with children and inviting them in. And some of those parents are probably pushing their kids in, you know, looking for payouts. Yeah. But regardless, and that's that's fine because Michael wears a glove and dances. So let's not talk about that. You know what I mean? So it's choosing the council as well. But I know uh, one of the things that I thought was fantastic that kind of underlines what I wish I'd seen from, you know, Ice Cube, I see whoever was was it little wayne after the whole defund thing kind of blew up and he came out and told a story about how you know i think there was a black officer that you know had ignored him when he was a child and they, i think they mm -hmm. did a they did an entry in his house and it was a white police officer that, that yeah. picked him up and helped him that's exactly yeah. it that's a human experience it's irrelevant of the skin color but it's like hey all cops aren't bad. All firefighters right. aren't bad. All paramedics, all doctors, all nurses, all lawyers yeah. and politicians even. There are some good mm -hmm. ones out there. Um, <laughs> so let's hear the story. If you, if you have 
you know, an experience that's against this two-dimensional stereotype, then stand the fuck up and tell it. Mm-hmm. And he did. He he. I remember watching an interview where he told that story, and you can watch the uh, the interviewers trying to put him down a path that w- they were basically trying to say, tell us all about how you know America is racist and. You're oppressed, basically, and, and he that dude was was on his A game because he's like, no, I'm I wasn't oppressed. I'm not like looking to look in my crowd. My crowd is is diverse. People like my music, and in, in his and that was you know he told that story to them because and what you could tell in the interview is that it was like he was getting upset because he knows the power of trying to divide people and make people fight, and and people will suffer from that. Now that the news people that were interviewing him, they're not going to suffer from that more than likely because they probably live in a very nice neighborhood and they make a salary and they have a job. But he's talking about when you're doing this, it's, it's fake. It's, it's, that's not the reality. And so he knew at a very young age, his life was saved by a cop, by an adult who happened to be white. Right. And I can guarantee you that cop didn't see him by skin tone. He saw him as a young kid who was probably caught in, in an environment that that cop didn't want to see him in. You know, why are they doing a raid there? What's going on? That sort of thing. But he saves his life, and that affected Lil Wayne, right? So he's trying to speak the truth on that interview. They didn't like that because it didn't fit that narrative, and it was almost like it is sad, but it becomes interviews or, or the news almost starts to become, you know, um, like a storyline. Like, hey, storylines are are driven by conflict, so we got to keep this conflict going. When in reality, the conflict's really not there. We're we're a wonderful country that has actually learned from mistakes and have constantly evolved and gotten better to where more people are included in life and more people are in positions of power and start their own jobs and and are professors and teach and do whatever. I mean, like like the it's there. You can go out there and do it. I mean. Look at Lil Wayne, the guy's making millions. He's making music and he's also doing things behind the scenes that we will probably never know about because he's not going to brag about it. I, I have to assume that type of personality, the way he is, he's probably doing a lot of stuff behind the scenes, helping a lot of people. Um, but once again, very few people probably saw that, that interview or even knew that side of him or that perspective because it's not pushing that conflict. It's actually bringing people together. So when you do have peace and unity, you don't have the violence, so therefore, sadly, a lot of news outlets think, oh, we're going to lose ratings that way. Or or enough people click a, a, on a story or share it, their news ratings go up. So it just reinforces their horrible decisions to keep pushing that type of conflict or that narrative, even sometimes when they know there's no conflict or they know the whole outcome of an event that happens, but they get that 10-second 10, 10 video and they know when they put it on, People are going to click and watch and they'll let you do that for about a week. And then they, then you hear the rest of the story where you go, oh, wow, that really didn't happen the way the news kind of portrayed it. That that really, really bothers me because I'm. that's one of the things I love about America is that you, you do have rights. You do have outlets and, and really good journalism uncover stories of corruption, of, you know, crimes, of whatever that help, that society changes because of that, you know. So I, we're in an era right now that I really, really worry about that, that we're going to lose, either lose the faith like that in, in news media 
or it has already become so competitive, right? That people are giving up integrity for those clicks and and shares and those ratings. Uh, and I hope it kind of self-corrects. You know, <laughs> there's a lot of other professions that have self-corrected uh, and and have kind of gone through a really bad bout of corruption and and have learned from that and cleaned up their own profession. I kind of hope that happens. I don't. I, I really. I don't even watch the news and people get mad at me about it. But I, I don't want it. I don't. One, I don't want people to manipulate me. I don't want to turn on a news story and and see the the BS in it. And then my brain goes right into that cycle of negativity where I don't have to watch the news, but I can guarantee you in 24 hours, I'll know what's going on because somebody's going to tell me or, or send me a news story or whatever. And I'm going to have to be like, okay, you know, uh, but for the most part, I don't, I unplug from that stuff uh, because I see enough negativity at work with stuff. I don't want it. I don't need it on my days off or on my time off. I'm not addicted to it. You know, I don't need it. Yeah. And I agree completely. It's interesting because up until, God, let's say 15 years ago, I think, you know, Howard Stern maybe was the first person that kind of had this kind of long form conversation that wasn't completely dictated by some sort of, you know, media company. But now, I I mean, the docuseries and documentaries that are out there are just incredible. Some really, really well made, you know, um, not super slanted. I mean, there's the shit ones out there too, but some really good documentaries. Um, Dope Sick, I just watched on Hulu, for example. It's a dramatized one on the um, OxyContin crisis. Amazing. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, you've also got podcasts. And I, I, I guarantee you, if you actually kind of really got to go through the weeds of what's behind this movement against Joe Rogan, it's probably coming from certain media outlets <laughs> that realize that he's fucking bigger than them. And they yeah, are spiraling yeah. downwards now. And this whole kind of mentality that, oh, we need bad news. We need fear. It's like, look at, look at some of those positive posts, good news movement, some of those, those pages, and look at these inspiring stories. Look how millions of views. Because we yeah. don't need to see death and destruction. Good news right. also sells. So, but, you know, that's not, you know, CNN, Fox, same thing. Divided screen, four assholes arguing with each other for yeah. an hour. That's not news. It hasn't been news <laughs> right. for years. The same way as MTV hasn't been music television for years. Right, right. Yeah, when you talk about Joe Rogan, it's interesting, too, when I hear people who, you know, say they don't like him. But, but then you ask, like, well, what is it about him that you don't like? And they'll, and sadly, they'll kind of say the talking points that they've heard. It's like, well, you know, sit down and listen to him. Cause I, I heard about him, uh, I don't know, maybe like a year ago. Um, and people were like, man, the way you run your mouth and talk so much, like, you, you know, you'll want to hear this guy. And I'd remembered, <laughs> you know, I'd remembered Joe Rogan before he had a podcast, but I was, I was sucked in mainly because, and, and he said it before, but he's not having, four people on there arguing and fighting. And it's like, no, let's have a conversation. If it lasts an hour or three, we can just talk about it. And it's not someone trying to convince the other one of their point of view. It's almost the opposite. It's like, well, this is why I think whatever I think. And so then you do get into the weeds of the conversation and it does start to go, oh, wow. Like, okay, I never thought about that. You know, or why is it that we have to draw a hard line between you know, medicine or vaccine, this type of vaccine, but, oh, don't do this treatment. Like, well, why is that? You know, there, there is a long history of picking, you know, one, one ailment can have different solutions to be treated. 
you know, so it's kind of like, why not leave everything on the table? Let people choose whatever they want to choose. And if it works, great. If it doesn't, there's that other option they can take. Anytime someone doubles down and makes somebody an enemy, I always have to ask myself why. Like, why, like just like you said, like, why is it everybody's trying to cancel Joe Rogan? Why not just say, well, if you don't like him, don't listen to him, right? I mean, I, if I've got a Spotify account, can I listen to music and other podcasts? Like, do, like so who cares? You know, if you don't like Joe Rogan, don't watch it. If I don't want to watch Fox News, I don't watch. If I don't want to watch CNN, I don't watch it. Like I, I'm not saying you got to cancel it. Hey, CNN, you can't be in business or Fox or whatever. It's like, I don't, to me personally, I don't care because I'm not going to watch or listen to it. But, but he has got the following he's got because people want that. People are starving for actual dialogue and conversation and enlightenment and not being told and dumbed down, this is what you have to believe. Or just that, that horrible feeling that's that's driven like you said earlier about fear-based news or anxiety you know it's like don't i don't need that injected in my life if i listen to joe rogan and he's got a guest on there that i really want to hear cool i mean he had a pilot on there talking about seeing a ufo in like 2014 and i'm going how did i never hear about this and then he's and then the pilot's like it wasn't even classified you can go on youtube and watch the footage you know so something like that i'm like this is cool. So now I can go on YouTube and watch it and go, wow, am I crazy if I think there are aliens or, or otherworldly uh, life forms? Maybe not because apparently no one can explain the flying tic-tac that's going <laughs> horizontal <laughs> vertical across you know, the ocean. I, to me, it's just like, yeah, cool. Let's have that discussion. I, I'm for it. Like, why would we want to cancel that as a society? That's why, that's why America is what it is. We have that ability. We don't, we don't have to. We shouldn't anyway fear that someone's going to cancel us or tell us we can't do something or kick our door in and, and, and be the propaganda police or something. It's crazy. Ban books. Don't ban the books. Just don't read them if you don't want to. Exactly. Right. And again, it goes back to, you know, if it's, you know, um, mind camp for something, then yeah, maybe don't put that in the school library. You got to use some common sense. Or, or how about this? If, if my job uh, in society Right. Like for me, I read books that are written by gang members because I do want to learn why someone joins a gang or, or their perspective or whatever it is. Uh, I'm not saying that a 15 year old kid should maybe read that book and go, yeah, oh, wow, I want to be a gangster, too. Right. But I think if we ban that type of book and and, and I can't get access to it and read it or whatever, uh, I just I think it's there. I mean, when, when I was younger, um, the anarchist cookbook was the one that they really, you know, a lot of people wanted to ban and, and uh, that was probably pre-internet, you know, where people, and if you know what I'm talking about, the, the bomb making one. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it, it was, and I, someone told me one time, they're like, dude, if you even try to do some of that stuff, it doesn't work, you know? So I don't know. I just remember being a kid and reading like soldier fortune magazine and, and having some wild friends that were into like, uh, you know, firearms and and wanting to build explosives and stuff not in a in a bad way just in a creative way they were interested in that type of stuff but if someone had a copy of that it was like ooh that's that's the that's the anarchist cookbook you know no one's supposed to have that of course now you've got the internet you can click on anything and and you've got access to all that material or that information so if all of a sudden someone comes up and says they want to ban a book I, my first question is like well why what is it like you know what what is it that you want to ban? 
And why is it such a threat? I mean, I think that's still going on in high schools. I think they're, they're banning like Tony Morrison's books and mouse and like all these other things. Like why, why ban it? Like you said, maybe it doesn't need to be uh, on the bookshelf of like a five-year-old or a seven-year-old or something, but can you learn something from those books? I mean, yeah, uh, obviously, or don't, like I said, I, nobody's making you read it. Uh, I really, I'm going to really think something's up. If somebody wants to ban Fahrenheit 451, you know, like that's going to be the, <laughs> that'll be the fi- final de- deciding factor. Like, all right, so something's afoot. We're, we're living in a twilight zone episode, or this is a script right out of Ray Bradbury short story or something like we're going to ban, you know, Fahrenheit 451. Who knows that that'll be the sign. How about that? Like if, I if think we see that, uh oh, the sign was Dr. Seuss. Like every character in there is purple and orange, and you know, and he, all the ones I ever read to my son were all about positivity and encouragement, and you know, kindness and compassion. And I'm like, you found something to be offensive in that? Like, I, I yeah, I'm, I, th- I think too. Um, like, if you find one aspect of something or one one you know something small. Then focus on that and say, okay, well, in perspective, like at that time it was written, what was it like? What was the message? Just like you said, I think the overall message is, is, in, is unity and, and caring and not judging other people and that sort of thing. Then let's focus on that. I've also, I'm, I'm old enough to know too, that some people can make a career off of or, or build their name off of being the first person to identify something and say, hey, this is racist or this is a threat or whatever. Uh, I mean, and you see it in sociology fields and, and psychology and stuff where someone will come up with a theory and then they pitch that theory. And then they're like, Oh, well, see, uh, I came up with a new diagnosis or whatever. And it's, it's kind of like, I mean, sometimes they, they just want to push their own agenda or make money off of whatever it is. And, and, and in turn, it's like, well, what are we losing by that? You know, I mean, probably a lot of kids learned a lot of great lessons from, various Dr. Seuss books, like maybe we want to focus on that. Maybe we want to keep that going. I, that's just my thing. It's like at the, at the end of the day, what is the goal? If you remove that, are you really removing that presence in society? You know, if you say a book is offensive or has something in sexual nature, okay, yeah, you remove that book from the, from the bookshelf. They still got access to the internet. They're still going to see it in movies, TVs. People have always had sex. You're not going to keep you know, teenagers in high school from, from having sex. I mean, study history, you had 16 to 17 year olds with, you know, starting families back in the rural South. I mean, you know, it's nature, it's going to happen. Maybe the discussion should be, if you have access to that book or you read that book, maybe as a parent, talk to the child about it, if you're that worried. But I mean, we, we went through the era of, uh, the PMRC or whatever, when they're labeling records and, and telling, you know, the parents parental guidance back in the day, uh, like late eighties, I think it started with Tipper Gore, Al Gore's wife started that whole movement, or at least was a spokesperson and people were losing their minds. Like, Oh, we got to slap these stickers on everything from Motley Crue to two live crew to everybody else. And those records sold millions. You put that label on there, that parental advisory label, they sold millions. So it backfired. So if you truly want to ban a book, like why, whoever starts that movement, what is it about it? Are they trying to get their own name into the news? You know, are they pushing their own program or whatever? I, well, it reminds I'm always me. suspicious. No, <laughs> it ahead. reminds me of, we had a, a preacher made national news, probably international news, but we had a, a shitbag 
you know, minister or whatever he called himself. And he had this big thing where he was going to burn an entire pile of Qurans. And when I heard about this, I, I said to my, I think it was my ex actually. But anyway, I was like, you watch. I bet you that piece of shit just wrote a book and this is a publicity stunt. <laughs> right. Mike drop. And you were That's right. Exactly right? what yeah. fucking happened. And Coulter, yeah. when she's running her mouth, same thing, just released a book. I mean, it's the same. Right. It's not about this mission, it's about money. And the same with the news. The entire CNN Fox kind of, um, you know, model is let's get as many people watching through fear, you know, sensationalism, so that we can sell our advertising space for the highest premium. <laughs> right. It's not about news. <laughs> so once you right. kind of take a step back and realize that, then as you yeah. said, you can choose not to watch it or you can choose which books. But, you know, ultimately, there's no better way to learn from history than leave the ugly side of it there as well. Rather than yes. tear down the, the the statues, maybe we should relabel them. Hey, this asshole was a slave trader. And just fucking yeah, leave yeah. it there. You, you, you raise <laughs> a good point because when all of that was going on, you know, a lot of cities were in the middle of it because they're like, okay, well, we didn't even know this statue really even existed, right? Because people are walking through city parks and stuff. They're not paying attention. And then all of a sudden, someone starts a protest and says, hey, we're going to tear this statue down. It represents oppression, slavery. A lot of it was going on in the South with the civil right or the um, civil war. So it's like, oh, wow, didn't even know that statue existed. A lot of people were like, well, why wouldn't you just, if you want to remove it, because I get it, you know, you don't want a statue that's, you know, 30 feet tall on a state capitol of some slave trade or something. I get it. Remove it. Put it in a museum, especially if you've got a city museum or a local museum. And then in that museum, tell that story of here's where a country goes wrong, right? Exactly. Without getting off on a tangent, sadly, right now, if we look at America and the way things are going, I don't like the division on every aspect of everything. And we are not moving closer to unity. I think like the way we were maybe in the nineties and two thousands, right? It seemed like the country was kind of really moving at a, at a steady clip of, okay, we've made a lot of, of gains and, and we're moving forward. Like the country kind of seems just pretty, pretty unified. Now we've got people that'll say, I don't drink Starbucks. I drink black rifle coffee. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we've gotten so divided. We're even, we're even arguing about coffee. Or and cell becomes, phones. Or cell phones. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. So those are some of the warning signs to me. I'm like, okay, at some point as a country, we need to check this and go, all right, I don't really care what kind of coffee you drink. I don't really care as much about your politics. Are you a good human? Are you, are you, are you not, are you going to go through your day and work and, and take care of whatever your responsibilities, your family? Cool. Then, then you're just like I am. Right. But if, but all these small divisions and it's, it's this us versus mentality um, that that people are are starting to um, exhibit or or display, that does have me worried. So I look at things too, like thirty years from now, what's America going to be like, and what's the world going to be like, and how did things happen? You know, was it these small things like this to where historians thirty years from now are going to look back and go, how did y'all not see that you're arguing <laughs> over coffee and cell phones and what company you support? And you know, it's it's like. We need to be aware of that. And it is the small things that start to become into violence. And I mean, we saw people throughout the country fighting at these statues. And, and it was a great way for two polar opposite types of groups to show up and get attention and get on the news and post stuff on their social media 
to try to get their movement to grow, you know, and it's that always, that, that was really concerning to me. It was kind of like everybody else is going through their day here. Here's the problem we have. Cool. Here's a perfect solution. Let's just do that and move forward, you know, and keep teaching the generations younger than us. We don't want this, you know, we don't want this division. We don't want a civil war. Hell, we don't want any war. Like if we could go the rest of, you know, humankind without war, that would be absolutely wonderful. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it reminds me of the football hooliganism of the 80s, the soccer. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, and again, that mainly those were extremists too. But you, there was a lot of tension. Oh, you know, are you Everton, are you Liverpool, whatever, especially some of the local derby teams. But then the World Cup happens or the Euro Cup, and then all of a sudden you're English. You know what I mean? Right. And you take it the same <laughs> yeah. thing. You might have two, you know, Steelers fans and 49ers or whatever yeah. ah, at each other's throat, and then they meet each other. In Mexico on vacation in Cancun, oh, you're American, I'm American. Right. And so you take these labels off and all of a sudden you see the commonalities. And that's what we need to do as a nation is take off the fucking football shirt and remember that you're both people, your dads, your husbands, your wives, you know, and and just get back to where you – stand shoulder to shoulder and stop focusing on the differences celebrated differences oh you yeah. know oh, yeah. you're african-american you you know you are terrible at swimming but you're awesome at running i can't catch you but i can beat you in the pool because that's physiology and you know just just years of background so those are things that we celebrate there are people in the gym that outlift me by more than double and there are those same people i can outright you know what i mean they just these are just yeah. normal little things that make us unique but what happens at the moment is, well, you know, James, your pigmentation is light, so you must be Aryan and, you know, so-and-so. It's right. like, dude, have you seen British history? I am the biggest <laughs> fucking mutt there is. Everyone that could reach the UK back in the day raped and pillaged my country, you know. So this, just stop seeing these differences and remember if there was a – if if planet Earth got to play other planets in some mm-hmm. multi-planetary sport yeah. – we would all be rooting for the same team. Yeah, back, back to the UFO. I've always thought like, <laughs> hmm, if, if we ever, right? Yeah, if we ever announce that we know there are aliens and we think they're a threat, then maybe the whole world would kind of come together, you know. And, and it kind of sounds silly, but you're right. Whenever it, whenever someone looks through that prism, or they meet, like when I meet someone, the first thing it, is I'm assessing from head to toe. Do they have a weapon on them? You know, if they're a complete stranger, like I'm going up to buy a cup of coffee and someone's standing, you know, half a foot behind me and they're a little closer than I like, I'm going to go ahead and scan them. But I'm also going to look at like commonalities. Maybe they got on a t-shirt of a college I like or something. So I may say something to them in that way, just to strike up a conversation for two seconds so I can get a read on their personality. Okay. If, If they mean mug me and they look at me up and down, like, you know, who are you? then I know they're a threat. If I can find some commonality, we can talk for a few minutes and then cool, you know, move on down the road. And it's, it's funny because if you think that way and you're, and you're constantly looking at life and going, okay, not, not everyone is what we think they are. You know, like someone can see somebody and go, like you said earlier, if if someone's wearing the opposing team's Jersey right off the bat, yeah, people go, I don't, I don't like that person. They're a Steelers fan or whatever it is. But but in the in the grand scheme of things, they're not going to hate each other and necessarily fight over it. Right nowadays, they don't. Hopefully, they wouldn't. But someone could be wearing a shirt of a presidential candidate, 
you know, or wearing a shirt that just flat out says I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat or something. And people, I, I all, got like, people yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And people will go, Oh, I hate that person now. It's like, stop. That's their opinion. They put it on their shirt. Who cares? We're both drinking coffee. We're both human beings. Yeah, but like which coffee are you drinking, that. asshole? Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're in Starbucks or what. I mean, what it's so, it's, it is crazy. It's gotten that way. And it, to me, it's nuts because I'm, I, if someone saw me, they would be like, oh, or hear me. They're like, oh, this guy's from the South. You know, he's this age. So by stereotypes, he should be racist, which is absolutely crazy because I was born after, you know, segregation in the South and that sort of thing. Like, I just, that wasn't on the radar growing up as and like we we're talking about with hip hop and stuff. It's like people were exposed to everything. Like my high, my high school is 60, 40, 60% white by 40% black. I mean, so it really didn't matter. No one cared about that. Then I go into the army where everybody's green, you know, I got I, I, in my company in the infantry unit, 10% of my company wasn't even born in America. You know what I'm saying? Like they were working towards their citizenship in America and they had these great stories of what life was like when they came to America and had to learn American culture and had to excel, you know, because that was just part of their families. Like, hey, we made it to America. This is what we're going to do. And these guys were all about the military, about the infantry. And here they could have grown up in a, with a different religion, different country. And here we are digging, you know, fighting positions together, putting camo on, training with our weapons. Like it's a it was just a great experience. And then now to have to see what's going on with the petty stuff that people argue and fight over, it baffles me. It's like, how, how, and then I have to stop and go, you know what? The average person is not doing this stuff. The average person doesn't hate their, their fellow citizen or whatever, their fellow human being. This is what we're being fed, spoon fed through news and through people that are fighting to keep their ratings and keep their money, which is all back to, the whole thing, like you said with Joe Rogan, people don't want to cancel him. It's because they're threatened. They're worried they're going to lose their their followers, and they should be, and they should adapt and bring in people and change their format and stop with all the division and conflict. Yeah, well, we get fed a lot of the negativity. It's funny. I saw um, came across I don't know my feed or something, and it was this fight broke out in the Golden Corral because someone cut the line and took the last steak. You know, well, that in itself, <laughs> yeah. the, the all-you-can-eat buffet should have been abolished after this last two years if we're talking about underlying health. So, yeah. but yes. <laughs> to counter that, some genius, I guess there was some woman who tore up a freaking store and whatever hissy fit she was having and like was flinging stuff everywhere. Well, this person put that kind of like inspiring female vocal music that's a lot on a, using a very um a lot of very uplifting videos and they played the video backward and the headline says kind woman helps restock shelves in store and as she's going back as all this right. shit's going back <laughs> and i'm like this is what? it this is it you know yeah we shouldn't even get to see that one time that some freaking crazy karen tore apart a store because the yeah. other you know 300 and 39 million of us went to a store, bought something, said thank you to the person behind the desk, and then left. Yeah. 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 That's why I, I, when, when I get on my soapbox, which soapbox, which is often, that's what I tell people, you know, look around your day to day activity. You're probably not going to see violence. You're probably, people are probably going to smile more at you than anything. And you're going to, you're going to go and, and, and shop and go to work and do all those things. And that's what we should be focusing on. And, and, like that video, 
should, and I bet that video probably gets millions of views because people are sharing it and going, yeah, this is funny. Like we should be seeing this, like just ran, random acts of like, oh, I'm going to go in here and uh, stock these shelves. And really it's just a video backwards of somebody tearing up a store. And you're right. It, it's just, it's, it's absurd. I think too, the fact that we get access to everything now through the internet, through videos, through social media. I don't know if our brains can adapt that way. Maybe we weren't uh, wired to just absorb so much negativity all day or so much uh, conflict. In re- I don't know. I just, I, I think there is a, a backlash probably long overdue where we're hopefully going to see a lot more, like you said earlier, like the, the good news outlets coming out and saying, Hey, or even just a movement of stop with the division and let's get back to, you know, you and ITY and just, just be, you know, unified. Like it's cool to go to work and to support people and to learn from that uh, as opposed to all this division and falling into these traps and feeling the security of, Oh, I'm part of this group and we hate these other people, you know, or vice versa, whatever it is. It's like, no, just, be a good human. I mean, that's really not that hard. And most of us are, like you said, it's very rare that someone does something so egregious that, you know, that the rest of society would hate them or, or shun them. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned your, about your time in the military. We haven't even got to law enforcement yet in your, your uh, timeline. Right. No, no, but this is good. That's why I love these long form conversations. Yeah. I mean, this is yeah. exactly what it should be like. Um, tell me, because uh, you were in the 101st, is that right? Yes. Okay. So, you know, about that, those four years, you know, where did you train? Did you deploy anywhere? Yeah. So the cool thing is anyone who's listening to this, that's in like 82nd Airborne or something like that, they're all screaming leg, you know, because the 101st Airborne is actually an air assault unit. You know, the designation changed in like 1973, I think, came off a jump status and went to air assault. So it's all like helicopter based going in, fast roping or just landing in a helicopter and deploying. But so I was fortunate to get uh, four years in that type of unit. I loved it. Uh, I would have stayed in the Army probably at that time if there was a lot more going on in, in anything because it was from from the uh, mid eighty or mid-90s, I apologize. Just prior to 2001 is when I got out uh, with 9-11. So I was already out in college when that happened. So I did not ever deploy anywhere or see any kind of, conflict or, or anything like that. It was the opposite. We were, we were trying to volunteer to get on rotations to go to Saudi Arabia or to the Sinai in Egypt. You know, every, everybody in the unit was like, hey, we just want to go do something. Or we were all fighting for positions to try to get to like Ranger School or, or anything else that we could get into. Um, and at that time, because the Army was downsizing, promotions had been locked. You had to have a minimum amount of time to get promoted. So I had joined the army at a time when I was fast tracking and I was told, Hey, you want to get to ranger school? You maybe want to go to selection to go SF. You got to do four years. Um, this is how, this is the path to go. And then when I get to the unit, they put halt, you know, put the brakes on all the promotions. And that was when I realized, all right, uh, as, as my platoon sergeant said, you know, kind of like, we defend democracy, but we don't practice it. <laughs> He's like, you're, you're in an organization right now that it really doesn't matter what you do. At 26 months, you'll get your next rank. So I was fortunate. I got a leadership position just because of what was going on. So I was basically like an E3 uh, fire team leader with 
E4s under me. So it was almost like people outranked me, but I was the team leader. So I at least got some of that to where if I would have stayed in, I could have, you know, moved on to some other stuff. But um, for me, it was great because I, I was able to kind of grow up a little bit, get a really good work ethic under me, and it paid for my college. So like I, when I got out and went to school, I looked at college like I did the army, like, all right, I'm going to be up at this time every day. I'm going to go to the library, then I'm going to go to class, fall back to the library, study, go to class, fall back to the library, study. So it wasn't like my day was go to class and then get drunk and hang out. It was very structured because I was a little older. I was a sergeant, you know, in the army. So I knew like I could take orders and I could also give them. So that, that all set up that path for me. So when I went to college, I actually enjoyed learning and have all from then on, you know, read books and always learned, but that's what the army gave me. So a lot of people will ask me about joining the army or that sort of thing. That's where I always tell them, you're going to learn a lot about yourself. You're going to learn a lot about other cultures. And especially now with like so many deployments, these, the amount of knowledge that the leaders know would in the, in the military now would be absolutely mind boggling to me because back then, luckily I had sergeants that had deployed and some of them had various backgrounds um, but that was one of the things that I, when I joined the military, that's what I was looking for. You know, I wanted those challenges. I wanted to be able to go into some type of unit that I could do more. And at the time, everything was so limited. Um, everybody was looking at re-enlisting and then going to selection for special forces. Or like uh, one of my buddies went to a Ranger Battalion. He knew somebody got a contract, you know, so that he kind of got out of that line company infantry, you know, into Ranger School and stuff. So, or Ranger Battalion, I'm sorry. Um, but that's what it was for me. And then getting out and just going to college um, and, and still telling people now, like the military is, is a phenomenal place for a person to go, especially straight out of high school when there's maybe not a lot going on in the workforce or you maybe don't know exactly what you want to do. You go into the military, come out of the military, and when you put that on a, on a resume, it immediately you've just surpassed everybody else that's applying a lot of times because at least an employer can say, oh, you were in the military for four years, then you know how to be at work on time. You know, you know how to do jobs that maybe you don't want to do, but you know they have to be done. So I've, I've worked in the private sector when I was in college, and I actually worked my way up to where I was actually interviewing people and hiring people for a company. And at that time, that was one of the things I learned that that, that company and a lot of others were like, hey, someone has to have work experience for us to be able to take a chance on them. So that was, that was, a, a, I mean, a, they don't have to be some green beret. They can be anything in the military. Just, it proves that you know how to come to work and, and do jobs that you don't want to do. So I'm not a military recruiter, but <laughs> it sells itself. You know? <laughs> so you went to school, studied psychology. So walk me through your journey into law enforcement. And then how did you find yourself working with gangs specifically? Yeah. So w- when I got on with the police department, the first thing I kind of noticed on my beat, and it was in the same area that I grew up. So I, I knew growing up kind of what the threats were. Uh, but then, you know, years later, I'd already been in the army college. I get back on the area and I started just seeing every day that the area that I patrolled in was very small. Like we would have beats, right. And the area I, I patrolled in had a lot of violence, a lot of shooting, stabbings, homicides, and a lot of drug sales, just like open drug sales. You pull up on the street and dudes are selling the cars and the cars are driving off, right? And so me having that background with a minor in sociology and I'm looking at 
how do we address this? Well, everyone's wearing red. Okay, cool. What does that mean? You start talking to people and they're like, oh, they're bloods. Like, well, we don't have bloods in the South. Oh, yeah, we do. You know, that's what people on the street are telling me. So it just started. It, to me, it was like, okay, this I can fix, potentially. I can't correct whether some guy is going to beat his wife tonight, right? I'm probably going to go to a call where that happens, but I don't know how to affect that change. However, I can pull up at the same corner every day and guarantee you that about 10 of the same guys are going to be out here selling drugs. Like, why can't we just get rid of that problem? So that I started asking people and talking to people about the gang stuff. And the more I asked, the more I learned. And, it, and at that time, people were not focusing on that. They were looking at how to buy drugs and get a quick drug arrest where I was looking at, these are gangs, which means they got to operate somehow together. How are we going to address that problem? So it just started where I would just start uh, building rapport with gang members and asking them questions. And it just went on from there to where eventually I learned enough about gangs that I could assist other units and other um, investigations like, oh, okay, hey, you've got a shooting and it involves you know this certain set of bloods hey, this guy you're looking for, it, this is where he lives, this is his grandmother. You know, it's, like, it's like having all this intel background to help people out. So that just kind of transitioned into going to an actual gang unit when we got one started. And so I spent about two years there, and that's where I started. And early on, you know, started developing training to help teach other people. So in, in, at that time, the trend was if you were an expert in something, you didn't teach anybody because then you become obsolete, right? Which made me mad because I would ask questions and people would say, oh, don't worry about that. Or, you know, you don't need to worry about that. You just, you're just a patrol officer. Or once I went to the gang unit, it would be like, well, we're the gang unit. We're supposed to know this stuff. So my logic was it shouldn't have been so hard for me to, to get this information. How can I package it and get it to other people? So then that was when I first started developing two-hour blocks of instruction, four hours a day, two days all the way up to five days. So it was, it was, it was me trying to replicate my knowledge to other people so that, you know, in a year or two or three or five, I could walk into a room and there could be 50 gang experts instead of just one or two. You know what I mean? So it's that just trying to make the situation a little easier, a little better, but that it, to me, it's just always fascinated me because I, I could apply everything from my background to it and kind of like, okay, why would a person join a gang? How are we going to address that? And then even working from the gang unit into a special assignment and working with the FBI and another unit to dismantle a gang, to spend about a year, year and a half, you know, completely dismantling the gang and charging them on a federal level. And then seeing how that gets replicated and how those arrests affect other gangs and how they operate and how they have to counter that and try to avoid federal indictments, which slows down their operations as well. So it just, it just builds and builds and builds that way, which also opened the door to join or to, uh, to be on a homicide unit, an assault unit, a uh, drug unit, and eventually an Intel uh, center. So it just kind of opens the door to that. I always joke that I've never written a speeding ticket. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't do stuff like that only because to me, I had a lot of other problems on my beat that did not, that would not be corrected by writing citations like that or speeding tickets. It was always more, how are we going to fix these large problems? Oh, you know, in the beat, and then, hey, how can we disassemble or dismantle this gang, or how can we break up this cycle of violence or whatever? 
So it's just, and it's a never ending pool of information. There's always a new gang, especially in the South. There's always a new gang popping up. New people are getting recruited or uh, the existing gang has now changed into from going from selling a lot of like narcotics to doing frauds. Okay. Well, who cares? You know, we don't really care until it becomes violent. Well, that same gang is killing people, but they're not selling on the street. They're now making millions of dollars in fraud. Well, let's use that fraud, those fraud charges to get them arrested so they're not shooting this rival gang or shooting their, their enemies. So it's, it just it, it opens up the door to all these different facets, facets of law enforcement that a lot of people don't understand, and they almost get intimidated by it, where I, I tell people, don't do that. Ask a lot of questions. I always tell people, like, I'm always learning. Don't say that, oh, you're a gang expert, therefore you know everything. There's no way to know everything. It's like always learn, always help, you know. And so same thing, like, through Instagram, a lot of people will send me messages asking, hey, I heard you on this podcast, you know. Uh, you mentioned about gangs. I've got gangs, you know, in my area or where I work or whatever. What does this mean? Like, you know, that like I analyzed the dude's uh, photos for graffiti the other day. I've never met him before. I know he's legitimate. I know he's a cop. He's just wanting to be able to explain what the graffiti means. So I could actually take, he could send me these photos and I can actually use a little um, graphics on there to circle the the graffiti, explain what this piece of graffiti means. The crossing out of it shows the rival gangs. This, you should be able to explain now in your area that you have two rival gangs. They're crossing each other out, which is basically indicative of future violence. So if you want to try to get ahead of some violence, maybe focus on those gangs with your drug charges or whatever crimes they're into. You know, uh, it's, it's, it's just that thing of like having to look at it's just a problem. Work at the solutions. Don't let your, your ego get involved. Don't. You know, don't don't worry about, oh, I don't know anything about gangs. We just start learning, start asking questions. And if you're in an agency that is trying to set up a gang unit, definitely reach out to me because I've done that before. I've had it to talk to other agencies about how to establish how that gang unit operates and probably the most effective way to do it as opposed to gang unit by name, where they're just really a drug unit running around buying drugs from random people. That was a long answer to a simple question. No, but, but I love it because it yeah, makes my yeah. job super easy. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. So I'm going to pose um, you know, a question to you that's always, it's always, I think, challenging for law enforcement because, you know, there's that indoctrination about drugs are bad, you know, the war on drugs. Yeah. I mean, you guys are the, the foot soldiers of that. When, two, kind of two parallel stories, when you first look at, some of the documentaries on how some of these gangs arose. There's always this common denominator of, you know, more often than not, maybe coming back from Vietnam around that era. But, you know, also an immigrant group that initially are a bunch of men who feel preyed upon. You know, they're they're the minority in that area. They just band together to protect themselves. And then there's this shift from self-protection to you know, basically drug use, drug selling, and then the guns and violence and everything else. Parallel to that, go back another 40 years. When you look at the genesis of drug prohibition in the US, Harry Anslinger and his, you know, cronies, and you realize it was on the tail end of the absolute failure of alcohol prohibition, that it was, there was yeah. a very racial element with racial, um, reefer madness and, you know, all, all these, yeah. this kind of hatred that was attached to it. 
As a firefighter paramedic who's worked on the East Coast and worked on the West Coast, I have seen this vicious circle of violence. I've pulled countless yellow sheets over 15-year-olds that died for some bullshit apartment complex that they called their hood. Yeah. And so I see, you know, what are we now? 90 years later, almost, this ripple effect that has created so much violence, not only in our country, I hear, you know, special operations soldiers talking about the opium trade in Afghanistan, funding terrorism from there. We look at the horrendous violence in Colombia and Mexico that's attributed to our immense drug consumption here in the US. So I'm not loading the question because that's my, my perspective. I feel like drug prohibition, arresting addicts and empowering the underworld by taking drugs away from the medical community has created so many of these problems. What is your perception of the illicit drug trade and how that factors into all the violence that you've seen in your career? Yes. So like I, like I was kind of mentioning before, you have, you have drug um, laws, right, that we enforce. The idea that we can arrest our way out of a drug problem is absolutely ludicrous. We can't do it because we can't stop people from starting their addiction. And once they start that addiction, it's, it's overwhelming. I mean, nobody would choose the life of an addict, right? It just, it happens, right? So I always teach, the strategies I teach are, especially for anyone who's in the drug unit, like their, their sole purpose and their day-to-day um, operations are drug arrest. Focus on gangs. Like every city has gangs. Every suburb now is starting to have gangs. And then put that through the filter. So maybe uh, you've got 10 different drug dealers in an area. Assess which one has one, a history of violence, which ones are caught in a current cycle of violence. I mean, you've got people that are 17 years old who've never been arrested, who have, who have no documented arrest history, obviously, because they're juveniles, of being uh, caught in a cycle of violence, but they could be one of your shooters responsible for two or three shootings in a city. But they also may be selling a little bit of Coke on the side or a little bit of Molly or X or whatever. Well, instead of worrying about all these other drug sales, go focus on that one person. If it takes you a week to get one drug charge, but it happens to be one that has a really good or is a really solid case, once you remove that person using the drug charge from the criminal landscape, they can't go shoot somebody. So, so that this sounds absolutely crazy, but that's how your violence goes down. Fortunately, you have a lot of people who are already known by law enforcement as being violent uh, gang members or violent drug dealers. You use the drug charges to get them off the landscape to stop that cycle of violence. Because the time you waste going out there, as we say, chasing the kilo ferry, right? These, these drug units, a lot of times, the mentality is the more weight they get in an arrest, the better the arrest is, right? So if someone goes out there and says, hey, I got a kilo arrest. Oh, wow. Everybody's high-fiving each other, pats on the back, you know, pose for a picture or whatever. They could get a kilo of cocaine off of somebody who's never committed violence and who probably won't commit violence. So it's like, yeah, you you can tie that coke way down the line to some cartel or something or some gang, but in the immediate time you spent on that arrest is a huge waste of time. So stop patting yourself on the back and high-fiving yourself. You really just wasted a week or two or whatever to get that kilo. 
when, when in reality, you could go out there and get multiple drug buys from multiple violent gang members and completely disrupt that cycle of violence, right? So if, if we in law enforcement begin to look at using it that way, then one, we're not harassing addicts, right? If they do get caught up somehow, like in a search warrant or something or during a traffic stop, the common trend right now is a lot of prosecutors want to just offer them a deal of, hey, get some help, like come back on another court date, show us that you've done some type of rehab or you're doing something to make your life better. We don't want to occupy a prison cell with someone who's addicted, right? I mean, basically, we want people who have earned their way into that prison through violence. So studying history, like you said earlier, like prohibition, you see like Chicago, how people rose to power through that. It's the same thing now. Like drugs are illegal. We thought that as a country, we could control it by keeping it illegal. And there may still be some aspects to that, that future generations are going to look back now and go, wow, y'all are really stupid. You know, you wasted a whole lot of time and resources. And once again, my logic is if the drug units and the police officers that are going after drugs focus on violent drug dealers and gangs, you don't have to necessarily change the laws and do all of that. You don't really have to really worry about that as much because you're focusing on the violence, right? But if you tell a drug unit or they don't have any strategy, right? I have worked around people who work on drug units or I've worked with other agencies and they don't have a strategy. They just, they arrest somebody, that person turns informant and says, hey, I can order up, you know, uh, eight ball or something. Okay, wow, let's go get an eight ball. And the next thing you know, they're off into some other neighborhood making an arrest on someone who's not even part of the whole criminal underworld in their city or affecting any of their violence. So I hope there's a shift, but I don't like to necessarily say hope. So at every chance I can, when I'm teaching people, I'm, I'm explaining to them, if you can use these strategies and use these drug arrests, that's how you control the, the, or not control, but you can disrupt the violence. Stop wasting your time on that. And, and like I said, stop setting your success on levels of drug seizures. You know, focus on gang members with guns who are selling drugs, right? Uh, the whole thing with decriminalization of marijuana, it seems like eventually that's going to happen. And, and honestly, I think most citizens don't really care anymore. I think politicians use that to get votes or to, to whatever. That's all political. I think the average person could care less, really, because my experience has been I'm probably one of the few people who've never smoked marijuana, and I'm probably one of the few adults who doesn't still smoke it every now and then or whatever. I mean, it's kind of like the, the equivalent of drinking alcohol. You know, prohibition, they thought, oh, we'll make it illegal. Everybody will stop drinking. And really, We've probably got a worse alcohol problem now than we did than we did, you know, back then or whatever. I mean, it just people are going to do what they want to do. And that's my thing is as law enforcement, we're peace officers. Our thing should be how do we focus on violence? Like what can we control and what can we disrupt? And to focus on that. And people will look at their drug units and see that there's a lot of resources being wasted by just chasing the kilo ferry or by not having a strategy at all, by like just not understanding. Like I've heard people say before, this location, 
people have been selling drugs on this corner for the last 20 years. And I look at it and say, well, why the hell is that? Well, I don't understand that. Like that, if you know where they're selling drugs, you're basically allowing that to happen until you put it on a dry erase board and say, this hotel will no longer have people selling drugs out of it. And what is our strategy? How are we going to address this? Let's pull our resources and make that the goal. Don't get sidetracked chasing other people in, in other parts of the city or hell, sometimes going outside of your jurisdiction to make an arrest. Look at where the violence is. Look at where open air, air drug sales are going on. Focus on that and crush it. That's it. Like a drug dealer is not going to show up to sell drugs at the same location they keep getting arrested at. They're going to adapt their, their way of operating. Gangs do the same thing. They're, they're going to eventually give up a corner or a hotel or an apartment or a trailer or wherever when it becomes too expensive to sell because you're getting arrested and you're doing time and your gang is losing people because they're going and doing federal time or, or local prison time. So they're going to adapt. The, the agencies that get on board with that, if you look at their violence, that's how you can control a lot of that. And if you're not doing that as a law enforcement uh, agency, you probably need to get on board. It's not cool to just kind of sit back and be like, yeah, you know, we got a lot of drugs going on here. It's always been that way. Um, that's, that's crazy. So I do, I do think there's a lot of change going on. And I, and I encourage a lot of people to speak up and to start getting into training and trying to help other people learn their techniques, you know, because there's a whole, whole group of people out there they can walk into a room and there could be a drug dealer in custody and they can immediately flip them into an informant, right? And get them to, to cooperate. Now, if you turn them into an informant or get them to cooperate, what are you getting? If you're just looking for them to go buy a little bit of drugs and move on, nothing's really going to change. If you start to develop them into informants that could give you intel for the next two or three years, you can actually use that information to prioritize who you're going to go after. Right. I mean, they're going to tell you all the ins and outs, but that whole that whole drug aspect uh, in law enforcement, uh, it, we're going to have to shift change, you know, shift the strategy as well as we don't have the staffing levels that we did have. Like these departments, and especially uh, the current climate, there are departments that are running on like 60 percent strength if everybody shows up to work, which is absolutely unheard of. We've we've I mean, it's always been tough to get people in the door you know, to work. But when you look at a police department staffing and you look at their whole chart and go, wow, you're holding, you know, 30% of your department is vacant. Like you don't even have people showing up. They've resigned. They've moved on. That becomes problematic. And then on top of that, knowing that you don't have the resources to do a lot of stuff, sadly, departments take the shortcut and they cut out their proactive units. So they look at it and go, well, we got to have people answer 911 calls. You can't go do drug work because you can't prove or show us, you know, that it even matters. Where you could take any department, pull 10 hard chargers who really know how to go after gang members and drugs and put them in the right locations. And your call volumes would go down in that area, which then you don't need as many patrol officers to respond, as well as your cycle of violence. It's very hard to get someone to understand that because they're, it's the old mentality. You know, I hate to compare it to the military, but the way World War II was fought is much different than 
the the you know war on terrorism or the conflicts in Iraq or Afghanistan a, a lot different and and less numbers of soldiers but moving in a different strategy in a different way in a different fight but right now we're in that era where a lot of departments are going to have to decide how to transition and bolster their officers to be very good at proactive drug arrest and proactive gang arrest as opposed to let's just have a bunch of people answer 911 calls and be completely um you know responding to this stuff instead of getting ahead of reactive yeah 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 that's what yeah so one of the conversations that just doesn't seem to have any airtime at all you know we were constantly demonizing law and i say we we is not including myself but you know (laughs) a lot of the the outlets demonizing law enforcement for the actions of the very few um but the other side of the coin is obviously no one is saying why are the streets of america some areas of course so dangerous why are a lot of our law enforcement officers having to look like they're you know in Afghanistan when they're just purely walking to the the streets. And that, again, circles around to ultimately the mental health epidemic that we have. So I talk about this a lot. I actually had someone email me and said, they like the the podcast, but stop talking about drug prohibition. I'm like, well, I will when when it's fixed. So help (laughs) me fix it and then I'll shut the fuck up. (laughs) But when, when a few of my family members moved to Portugal and a lot of people that listen to this show have heard this story before and I apologize, but very long story short, in 2000, a bunch of progressive Portuguese got together, put this to the nation as a vote. They had these soldiers come back from one of the African colonies um, after a war there. Their soldiers came back. There was a huge heroin uh, epidemic, which again permeated through the country, had the worst uh, addiction rate, I think, in the whole of Europe. And they said, you know what? We're not going to lock up addicts anymore. We're going to decriminalize addiction. So people misunderstand. That's not now I go to the supermarket and there's crack and meth. And it just right. means that I'm, I'm an addict. You detain me. And there's not a criminal route now. I'm basically given, it's not, I'm given the option of going into an interview. So I think, I think I go to an interview first and I'm given the option if I want to participate in, um, addiction counseling, mental health counseling, this job creation. And so what they ended up doing was cutting the head off the snake because they put the addiction element squarely back in the hands of the medical community. So supply and demand, the, all the addicts were then able to go and, you know, go down those, those channels. There's a huge amount of them that actually, you know, were healing through that. You remove the stigma, the fear of arrest. A lot of people came out the shadows now. The ones that couldn't kick it, because there's always that group that you're not going to fix, went to safe injection sites. So you didn't get fentanyl overdoses and all these things. You didn't get, you know, all the bloodborne pathogens through needles like you get in the, you know, underpass of a freeway. And within less than 10 years, they had become the lowest addiction in Europe. 10 years. Now, you think about what that does for law enforcement, what that does for the prison system, the judicial system. It cleaned it out. So these resources were then able to be used to focus on the real turds. As you said, the violent crimes, the the pedophiles, the, the robbers, all these areas, and the dealers and the smugglers. So then you cut the head off. Now you chop all the other pieces of the body up as well. So when I talk about decriminalization, that 
to me is we're making our streets safer for the civilians. We're making our streets safer for the law enforcement community so that maybe one day America will look more like Norway and Sweden and Iceland and these other countries where they're not having gang wars and they're, you know, the police officers aren't having to wear tactical yeah. gear everywhere. So if you were king for a day and that was put in place here and drugs were were just not an option to sell by the underworld. What impact would that have on on the kind of work that you do now and the people and the violence that you see at the moment? Yeah. So let's say, like you're saying, if drugs are completely legalized and the only way uh, or the way you get them is you go to a dispensary, right? I guess that's kind of what you're saying. Like if it's the way, kind of like alcohol is. Like yeah, but, but it wouldn't store. be, it would, I mean, that would be obviously marijuana, but everything else you would have to go, let's say it was... Um, you know, an opiate, the fentanyl or something, or even, you know, I don't know if they do it with meth, but you'd have to go to a place. They would administer it to you. You'd be observed and then you would leave if you were completely addicted. But no, you wouldn't go anywhere and buy anything unless, you know, obviously it was marijuana. But I don't even think they sell marijuana in Portugal. I think it's all just, you know, at that site. Yeah. Well, like I was saying earlier is gangs are going to adapt. So it's true. If they can't make money off of the drugs, then they're going to do something else, right? What we learned from the crack epidemic was that's where you saw these gangs go to war because it was so much money to be made, but there was such a high demand for it. People were started using crack. It was very cheap. And when you're making thousands and thousands of dollars a day, you want to push your competition out. Which in turn, like you said, that's where you started seeing a lot more special response units, SWAT teams, people what you know that the, what they're saying now is like militarized police or whatever, you know, wearing the gear. Well, they're wearing the gear because they don't like getting shot and absorbing the bullets, you know. And the gangs are, are armed, drug dealers are armed, uh, you know, any type of uh threat can be armed. So yeah, that's why they wear that. The unit I was on at one point, we had uh, patrol rifles. We would literally swing, sling our patrol rifles and go on kind of like a movement to contact. We would go through the cuts in between neighborhoods, the areas we knew were selling drugs, where we knew gang members were. We would hide in the shadows, watch the people, and then go, yep, that dude's got a gun in his waistband. Or he's got a gun in his pocket, or he just stashed a gun right there. We already know who a lot of the guys are. We know they're convicted felons. They can't have the gun. But you're not going to walk up to someone necessarily with your pistol in the holster when you know they got an AK or a shotgun or something within arm's reach, right? If someone sees us from the outside and goes, wow, look at these officers walking around in between houses and in shadows with quote unquote assault rifles on their body. This is terrible. This is militarized and all that. We did that. So we would have the upper hand and we wouldn't necessarily get into shootings because now we have fire firepower superiority, right? What we also learned is that citizens that saw that happening, that had lived in those neighborhoods and had seen the gangs, loved it. That's what they wanted, right? So the, that's the whole reason all that goes on. That's why we have the material we have, the ballistic vest, the helmets, and all that, the rifles, because the threat has it, and that, that's why we have it. The, the idea of you know decriminalizing drugs or having dispensaries or having a, a facility someone could go to Yes, that would make things easier for law enforcement because then you wouldn't have to worry about making arrests and processing people and tying up the courts. I think one of the things we would have to focus on 
is looking at cities that have already done some of that. And I, and I want to say off the top of my head, Seattle and maybe San Francisco, I think, have tried some of that. Um, and when you see people come into a community that already have the addiction, they may say, hey, I'm going to – and if it, is, if it isn't San Francisco, I apologize, but I think that's one of the cities that kind of has that culture of you can shoot up in this area. You then have all the problems that come with that. You know, if someone has an addiction, they have to, they have to buy the drug. Where do they get the money? And if they're addicted to drugs, oftentimes they can't hold a regular job because they're on the nod, they're passing out or whatever. So then they turn to the petty crimes and burglaries and breaking into cars and sadly prostitution. So I still think we would have the problem with petty crimes. We would have probably more crimes increasing like that around areas where people have to go, right? You see that pattern sometimes with methadone clinics where people are going there because they want to get clean. They want to get methadone. And sadly, you've got people hanging out in the parking lot trying to sell them heroin, right? I mean, I, I had an informant at one point where, I'm having to try to debrief her and get information. I've also got to drop her off near the methadone clinic. And she's coming back like, hey, here's a dude's phone number. He's trying to sell me heroin right now. You know, it's absolutely horrible. So I, until you can kind of address that problem, the underlying problem of addiction, I think even by decriminalizing it in an area, you're still going to have people committing crimes to feed that addiction. If it's more severe like that, like it's very... It's hard, you know, and, and, you know, because you've done research, and you've experienced it on, on the field, watching people who are addicted, especially heroin. Well, I think knowing, yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't mean Go to ahead. cut in. Um, I think because we're thinking as Americans with the worst fucking healthcare system on the planet, I believe that these addicts in Portugal are not paying for their fix. The same way as, you know, in the NHS in England, you would get, you know, your blood pressure meds for free and your, you know, diabetes kit and everything else. Uh-huh. Free, obviously, it's it's tax paced. You know, as they're whittling down the number of addicts, as they keep healing and healing and healing, there's no need to buy heroin from the car park because you're actually getting the purest, best version of what you're looking for dispensed to you for free, paid for by you know the United Country because we take care of everyone. And then you know, and then there's a there's a obviously a very fiscal reason to get as many people off their addiction as possible you know so i think that's the thing is when we think of it with american eyes it it jars it doesn't make sense but imagine a country that actually a country actually gives a fuck about everyone in their country and doesn't want them living under bridges and selling their bodies for sex you know and there will always be those people but you know you get the majority of them off there is no you know, there doesn't need to be any petty crime because they're getting that fix there. Now, is it completely eradicated? No, and that's the point. And we always kind of like to focus on the outliers rather than the the mass good that we're actually going to do. But if you imagine a socialized, oh, I hate that word, um, a <laughs> national health yeah. philosophy yeah. where you take care of everyone and proactively you know that you're going to save lives by addressing addiction, you're going to empty out prisons, you're going to make it safer for law enforcement and the community then it's worth those proactive dollars addressing that addiction epidemic. You're sadly still going to have those lost souls that are just too far gone. But then you at least make sure that they're taken care of under a medical umbrella and they're not dying of a fentanyl overdose under a bridge somewhere. Yeah, I didn't understand that aspect of it. That, from, <laughs> from a politician's point of view in America, I can't imagine any politician would push that because just like you said, 
you're you're now having to go into a system where a taxpayer's money goes towards giving someone drugs, right? That that would be, I I would say that would be almost insurmountable in America. But think Just about it: taxpayers that, do yeah. give people drugs. You know, lots of opiates. <laughs> no, I know. I'm saying, you know what I'm I mean? saying to be able to like how to <laughs> explain it to where Americans would say. That is a good idea. I could, and, and, and yeah, go ahead. You could start with this. There was a, a long haired, bearded gentleman. I believe he had blue eyes called Jesus, who uh-huh, yeah. used to do a lot of things for other people without expecting anything in return. So right. that'd be a good start. With yeah, the, the yeah. The blue eyes I mean, thing, I'm, I'm not sure about. I think he was born in the Middle East, but. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It's always interesting people's artistic depictions of him. But uh, yeah, I think that, like anything, any huge problem we have in society, Put everything on the table, right? Any problem I'm trying to solve, I'm looking at it from different angles. So if part of the problem is, or part of the solution is this type of facility, cool, let's run with that. What's the other aspect of it? And this is what some people who don't deal with addiction and and have never seen it on a personal level or whatever, they often say, well, if you lock people up, they won't do drugs. No, we know that doesn't work. Like they... It's the addiction itself that they're trying to fight, uh, and set because I mean, who would want to to do that, right? So I would say put everything on the table and look at it, and yeah, how would this work, and is it feasible to do it? And then on top of that, how, how you're going to put it into play? I, I look at it like I said, if I go out there and make one drug arrest today, right? I want it to be the most violent person and the person who is causing the most problems to society. So I think if law enforcement shifts to that, you don't, you, you'll kind of break that cycle of focusing on the addicts. And I do think that a lot of, especially now, a lot of the criminal justice systems can catch up because there's less proactive work out there. Like traffic stops are down across the country. Um, what we would call like a, a regular encounter, like a police officer going up and talking to someone they think has a gun or whatever, like a proactive aspect. A lot of that's gone down, which has also caused uh, arrest rates to go down, which then allows prosecutors and courthouses and stuff to catch up with their docket. So I think as a country, if you put multiple avenues to address the problem, you're going to have a better chance of accomplishing that. But if you pitch just one idea, like a lot of people would hear your idea and say, there's no way, kind of like I said, I started putting it through, like you said, American eyes and a perspective that to me is that rugged individual of I pay for my own insurance, I pay my taxes, I work, you know, that's that idea. Not necessarily, oh, wow, someone's going to go get their fix on my taxpayer dollar, you know, and like you said, we're already kind of doing that. I will say that one of the things that I think has helped for a lot of people, uh, it's kind of a double-edged sword, but is like Narcan or any type of agent that you can introduce to the body that saves them from overdosing, from a lethal overdose. Your stats are going to be higher overdoses in a lot of cities because people are repeatedly overdosing because they're using Narcan. So if you're, yes, if you're studying that, people will go, wow, we introduced Narcan in a city and everybody carries it from fire, EMS, you know, police, the parents of the addicts, whatever. But all of a sudden, we've seen the number of overdoses quadruple, right? Well, that could be those people that are repeat 
patients that are overdose, right? Where before people would hit that lethal overdose, that's it. That's the only overdose on your stats. So it's just one of those things like too, when we're studying, you know, statistics and going, is our, is our opioid problem getting worse? Is it getting more severe? Is it, you know, I would say that it's not as severe because of Narcan and because of what we've learned and, and implementing that into the field as, as fast as possible. The counter to that is fentanyl is everywhere now. It's being cut, like cocaine's being cut with fentanyl. So you have people who are doing coke who aren't used to being around heroin, so they don't understand that, and they're hitting a, hitting a line of coke, and the next thing you know, they're coding out. They're, they're literally overdosing on fentanyl, and no one knows how to react to it because that subculture that's using coke doesn't deal with heroin. And they didn't know, oh, wow, my Coke is getting stepped on with, with fentanyl. So that's, it, it's always evolving like that. It, and obviously, it's a complex problem. I just, for me personally, I've, I always look at causation and correlation. And I'm looking at, if I make an arrest, I want it to have a ripple in my area. I want to arrest a drug dealer who's selling heroin that's laced with fentanyl because you're killing people. You know, <laughs> it's like... I, I, let's put the effort on that person. Let's not worry about the addicts who have heroin, you know, in their pocket or whatever. Like so there should be more discretion, I guess is what I'm saying. If an officer encounters someone with a user amount of heroin and they've got a history of addiction and they're not selling, they're not part of some criminal organization, there should be discretion at the officer's level to be able to say, yeah, this is a felony amount because this is a Schedule Two or Schedule One drug or whatever. However, they should have the discretion to say, "Yeah, but this person's an addict. I can prove that right now." And then here, I'm going to take you or give you some information to work with this program or this facility or whatever. More of an educational piece. And if that even means that you've got that person detained on the on the drug paraphernalia or the drug possession, but they're not a a, a dealer and not part of a criminal organization. Is there an uh, agency on speed dial, you know, that, that officer can call and say, hey, I've got an addict stuck here. They've got needles all over them. They've got residue, you know, stamped baggies. They're not who we're going after. Can you respond out here to talk to them about addiction or whatever it is? I mean, they're, and I'm sure there's probably cities out there that, that, that are using some type of program like that. But, but most, I mean, most departments uh, you don't have discretion for felony charges. You encounter someone and they have a felony charge. You have to make the physical arrest usually, which causes the addict to then get arrested into the criminal system because they have a residue amount of, you know, heroin on them or cocaine or whatever it is. Um, then the officer's hands are kind of tied where when you can use discretion as an officer, you can actually affect different ways in your day to day, you know, okay, every day I've got guys that are drinking, you know, uh, at this park bench, I don't want that because the citizens don't want some drunk guy out here with his pants down, you know, or whatever they can enforce those alcohol violations or whatever on that person to correct that problem, as opposed to encountering someone in the park, you know, who's, who's high and they find a little bit of Coke on them or something. Now they got to make that physical arrest go to the jail, be at the jail for an hour or two processing them. Meanwhile, these guys are having a party at the park bench that your whole neighborhood's complaining about. I mean, that the discretion is the huge tool that we forget in the law enforcement world 
of empowering that local officer to be able to make those decisions. And that's, I think that's where a lot of people get caught up because certain drugs are felonies. Any amount is a felony. So if their officer's hands are tied, they're just going to process them at the jail. Now they're going to either potentially do some local jail time. You know, that's just another person on the docket that a prosecutor has to deal with. So I'd say, I say hit the problem with multiple angles. And once again, if departments have strategies to address that, not just drugs are bad, <laughs> go out there and make an arrest. And, and we can brag that we made 150 drug arrests, but yet half your population in areas is dying of, you know, opioid or whatever, you know, whatever the drug problem is. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, I, yeah, I was gonna say, I appreciate your, your perspective. I think it's so important to, to ask these questions and then me shut the hell up yeah. and listen to everyone's different <laughs> perspective. But I think a, a real kind of wake up call for me is on this podcast, I've had some incredibly driven men and women that are in law enforcement, that are in fire, that are in the special operations, who are also alcoholics, addicted to meth and opiates. And you know what I mean? So our own community, we see it and we kind of just turn a blind eye. If the addiction can affect highly trained, disciplined officers, a member of the military and, and fire service, then it sure as hell can affect people that didn't even get indoctrinated into those professions. So, I mean, it's a real thing. And We've given it a 90-year longitudinal study with the way we do it now, and I just feel like it's time that we really put our big boy pants on and try something different. Well, yeah, like you're saying, I mean, if we've, if we've got that much history, once again, like there has to be strategies. And I, and I think that um, that's just proof you see this in every field, have a strategy. Like police departments have to have strategies, and I, I do believe that's where you, we would start to see change in society. Like I said, with a drug unit, I mean, some of the worst um, stories I've heard people tell me about were addicted to drugs, and you encounter them on a drug unit. You may want to you know, get them to cooperate in order to get to their dealers or whatever, but using that time to talk to them where sometimes maybe a, a drug detective would just be like, okay, do you want to work? Let's order up some Coke, you know. Where a lot of times myself and some of my colleagues would be like, hey, what's going on in your life? What do you got going on? How did you get hooked? Because you're wanting to learn all the facets of this problem. Like, why is it that multiple teenagers are overdosing on opioids? Like, how do you even know about opioids? And then people tell you like, oh, yeah, I steal steal them from my grandmother or my dad or whatever. You know, it's like, well, yeah, but why would you take uh, Oxycontin? Because as an adult, we know how dangerous it is. But teenagers are like, and I've had a guy say it because the government made it. It's it's safe. My grandmother uses it. It's like, no, dude, it's prescribed. And so you get the whole conversation like they don't understand that. They're looking at it as, yeah, uh, uh, heroin off of the streets, man, but I can pop this oxy and I'm good to go. You know, it's like, no. So a lot of that's education and a lot of that is understanding how people get caught into that cycle so that when I'm no longer a drug detective. Maybe I move up the chain and in the agency, I can actually help with that strategy or make those decisions, you know, and say, yeah, hey, we're not going to go chase the kilo ferry anymore. We're going to do this strategy. Or when you encounter these addicts, call this number. This is a drug treatment facility. You know, they're willing to do whatever. I, and, and working informants a lot of times too, it's that thing. You, you're building rapport and you're trying to help them with their life. 
it is great when you have a resource like that and say, look, go talk to this person, see what you can do. Let's, let's focus on your addiction and we'll focus on the drug dudes. You know, we'll move up the drug chain. But I think just like you said, if we look at it like, hey, our own colleagues have been caught up in this stuff and it's not the us versus them. It's, you know, it's us versus this, you know, this addiction, this it that's out there and not stigmatize people and say, oh, well, that person's addicted to whatever drug. They're bad. You know, they're criminal. But yeah, you know, they're criminal when they start selling it, in my opinion. They're criminal when. Absolutely. They're, yeah, you know, but, it, but an addict is someone who is consuming it. And how do we treat that? Because if we could cure the addiction, then we wouldn't have the problem in Mexico with cartels that the citizens of Mexico are, are getting you know, killed and living under the gun because these drug cartels are making so much money off of America's drug problem. You know what I mean? Like we're, we're the consumers, but another country has to suffer for it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, that's what I talk about a lot. And then the, the other side of the coin is we have men and women that have either served in first responder professions or served in our military who then have to go overseas to get the MDMA-led um, counseling, the Ibogaine, the psychedelics for the TBI, all these treatments that have been proven and are, are, people are fighting to try and get legalized over here that truly move the needle on a lot of the mental health stuff. Our men and women literally have to go to another country to be able to take. So that's the other side of the argument is the therapeutic element, again, under the guise of a medical community and the benefits of some of these compounds. Yeah, I, and that's my thing, too. That when, when I was growing up and guys were, were dropping acid, I'm like, that's bad, dude. Like it, I watched somebody have a bad trip, and it, it scared me to death, right? So that's my impression of acid or LSD or hallucinogens when, when I was young, right? That's a long time ago. If there is a program out there where someone uses that and that somehow helps another facet of somebody's brain and how it works, I'm, I'm going to listen to it. I'm not going to shut that down. I've watched people suffer a lot with uh, bipolar, you know, or other, other um, illnesses that they're battling on their own and they don't want to necessarily take prescription medicine because the way the side effects are. So I know a guy that smokes weed or uh, cannabis, as we say, but I mean, that's what he does. Like he legitimately smokes weed. And he's like, man, this is the one thing that helps balance my life, you know? And that's all I want to do is I want to do my, my art, my profession. And I just, I just want peace. I don't, I don't want to have to, to deal with the, the stuff that I've dealt with in the past. And this is the one thing that does it. And so for me, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I don't, I mean, why would we not as a society say that? Like, don't stigmatize something. It's a tool just like anything else. You know, if someone goes in for surgery and they're given a painkiller because of the surgery, but that same painkiller gets consumed out on the street. Now the person consuming it is considered a criminal or it's like, no, they're <laughs> maybe they're battling the same demons. I don't know. But, but if someone puts a plan on, on the table that says, Hey, if this person is suffering from whatever, whatever illness it is and marijuana helps with that, then yeah, I'm all for that. If there's some other, um, you know, substance that does that. Yeah. Let's support that. Like that. I just, I think the idea of not opening up our, our, um, not opinions, but like I just, just opening up your process of solving problems to all aspects 
then we, we as a society are short-sighted, and especially those that are in any type of position of power or influence. If we're just thinking we have all the right answers, we're, we're idiots, right? It's like, hey, I, give, me, give me some solutions. Give me some aspects to address this problem, right? So if, if I am king for a day, like you said earlier, that's what I'm going to want to know too is, hey, if, before I make this decision, what are the pros and cons? Okay, let me study what Portugal did. You're right. And what is the history of it? What is the outcome? Can that be applied here? All those things. Like, I like when someone can give me multiple opinions or multiple angles to attack a problem, not this is the only solution here. Right. So, I, I mean, and you're talking to someone who has, has been doing this for almost two decades in cop work. And I've never been drunk. I don't drink alcohol. You know, been listening to straight edge since I was 10, but I still look at it and go, I, that's me personally. Right. But what about other people? And then when they're battling this, am I going to throw them a lifeline? Am I going to help them out however I can? Or, or am I just going to put my foot on their head and push them right back into the water and say, no, you deal with it because I don't, I'm strong enough not to be an addict. You should be the same way. Like that. everybody's wired differently and not everybody has those same same way I grew up or same whatever options that I had. So I just think if society looks at it a little bit differently and says, okay, if we can help some of this, then yeah, society is going to be obviously a lot better. You know, yeah, try it out. Why not? We know the last 90 years hasn't necessarily. That's, that's the only reason I say like the strategy of use the drug charges to go after violent gang members. Make your time matter. Be effective and efficient. Don't just come in to work and wait for the drugs to fall into your lap as a, as a drug cop or whatever. It's like, yeah, you're, you're not going to have a drug arrest every day, but when it, when you arrest someone, it should matter. It shouldn't be an addict. It should actually be the drug dealer. And for those people out there listening, going, well, if I arrest the addict, they're going to flip and buy from the dealer. I kind of get that. I got you. Yeah. But you can also cut right to arresting dealers and I won't go into all the techniques that we use, but really good drug detectives I've watched know what they're doing. And it's not always about arresting an addict and trying to get them to flip. It's there's a bunch of other techniques you can use. So it's just being problem solvers and, and always assessing, are we doing better or making things better? Or are we just kind of collecting a paycheck and, and wearing plain clothes and growing beards and getting to hang out, you know, the drug units like, no, like take, take the fight to the violent drug dealers and to the gang members, leave the addicts alone, help them out as much as you possibly can. Beautiful. Well, I love that. So thank you. So I want to hit on one more area and then before we get to to the writing side, if you've got time. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. So we talked before we started recording about this current kind of anti-police rhetoric you mentioned about staffing going down. You know, we're seeing obviously, you know, this is my surprise face, an epic failure where they've defunded the police because uh, I've talked <laughs> to the last, you know, whatever it was, three, three and a half years before this kind of became a thing about how we need more training, more funding. I think it, it, to me, it's fucking insanity that any agency has only one police officer to a car. I think that's a you know, disaster waiting oh. to happen. Um, Welcome to the South. Yeah, yeah go ahead. <laughs> so talk to me again, kind of your perspective of this last year and a half. And again, you know, we talked about the, the, the outliers and minorities having this loud voice. What are you seeing as far as the, the majority, the regular people and their perception of law enforcement? Yeah, uh, people uh, want to say this community, that community. It, there, it's just it's citizens, 
So in all the cities, you can have someone in a certain demographic, right? That can have a million dollars and own their own company. And that same demographic, someone could be in charge of a game. All, in my experience, none of that matters. When it comes down to it, the average citizen wants more police out there. And when I say, okay, let me back up. When I'm saying the average citizen, the citizens I was encountering in the district that I worked on patrol, the people that I encounter now are a lot of times going to be all over the city, right? So the idea is more police officers, not less. But like I said earlier, a lot of citizens don't want a speeding ticket or a ticket, you know, for running a stop sign in the same neighborhood they live in where the guy across the street is running a, you know, a trap house or they see people, you know, they, they see all the problems in their neighborhood not getting addressed, but they, they're getting a ticket during a traffic stop in the same area going, well, why are you getting me a ticket? Yeah, I ran the stop sign. I'm sorry, uh, you know, but you're writing me a ticket. It's going to cost me $300 and I got to go to court and I got to deal with this and it's going to be points on my license. When those guys sit there every day and drink beer and the kid across the street got stabbed and nobody got arrested and down the street, this guy's running like what we have in the South, a shot house where he basically sells drinks out of his freaking kitchen and, they, and drug dealers sell out of the back of his house. Why aren't y'all doing that? You're, you're busy. You know, that's a legitimate argument. For the most part, people are scared in the last year to a year and a half because they've seen the increase in violence and they've seen less police officers. So anyone, like anyone who's pushing the agenda of defund the police, whoever gets on the news and says it, the first thing I would want to say to them is, do you live in a safe neighborhood? Have you experienced true violence? And do you know what it's like to live in a neighborhood where a gang has a presence there, right? Because a lot of grandmothers talk to me and they have expressed, I don't want my grandson joining this gang that I got to see out here all the time. Well, now that you that the movement is quote unquote defund the police, how are you going to address that problem if you have less police officers? If you don't have money for training and the push is for less proactive policing, the citizens are scared and that's and, they, and they're right to be. Because if you're seeing if you're seeing violence increase, less police officers, what is the next step? What's the solution? Sadly, you're going to see probably more acts of vigilantism where someone's going to go, you know what, I'm, I'm done with this. And especially if they watch the news and they're caught in that cycle of fear, it's going to be, I have to protect myself or my neighborhood and the police aren't doing anything about it, you know, then, then we're going to do something about it. And you can study societies. They've all, people have always done that. Like in New York, when the black hand came there at the turn of the century and we're kidnapping kids and setting arsons and, you know, the citizens fought back with the white hand, right? They were leaving notes. They, it was acts of vigilantism, right? You see it down in Colombia when uh, they're taking out um, Pablo Escobar, the notes from, you know, the, the Los Pepes or whatever. Anyway, there, in America, we shouldn't want that. We shouldn't want citizens to feel like they have to defend themselves in that sense, meaning that they have to go out and attack this problem. We as a society should support the police and go, yeah, look, here's the money. Here's the support. Fix the problems we have. And so that's this whole idea that, that you know, people use these terms and go, oh, well, everybody hates the police and the police are corrupt and this and that. It, it's the opposite. We are in an era where 
we probably have the most professionally or most professional, educated, trained officers that we've ever had in history. The level of corruption is probably at an all-time low, right? What I do worry about is not necessarily corruption, but corrosion. You're going to have departments that had very high standards, and now the standards are going to start slipping because they can't get people in the door. So now they're going to potentially, they could hire people with lower standards that will then breed corruption because that of the lower standards. Maybe that person has a personality trait that we're going to overlook that ends up being corrupt to where they're taking money or, you know, and you can see it in, in you can read about uh, NYPD went through that, that phase where uh, they were having trouble back in the late sixties, early seventies. And the Rampart scandal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, in any of the big cities, you can see this where you always want to have uh, people willing to get in uniform and do this as a duty and take pride in it and really care about what they're doing and not teach them as a society that this is just a job, a nine to five, and anyone can do it. It's not that big of a deal. It's like, well, it, it kind of is. And you don't want someone looking at the job and just saying, well, I'm going to get through this shift and then go home. You want the officer coming in there who's saying, what's my number one problem on my beat and how am I going to fix it? So I'm hoping right now that what's going to happen is that people are, are going to understand the whole defund the police movement really doesn't make sense in its root. If you're saying that the police are ill-equipped and they're not trained properly, then how are you going to get them training? If you're cutting their funding, you know, if you want people to live safely, then you got it. You got to be able to, to have the money to hire the police to do that. And the, and the neighborhoods that experience the most violence on average, like when you're studying your, your activity in your jurisdiction, you look at that, that's where you put your police resources. You don't say, oh, well, we're, we're only going to patrol the city, you know, and put the resources all over the city. It's like, no, you want to stop that violence. So you are going to have more police officers in the area and more interactions. I just say, don't write every violation you see. So if you have a district that is seeing the most violence and let's say that's African-American community, you don't need to be down there writing speeding tickets and writing violations for every little thing. Use your discretion, get the information of where the violence is and work that as a whole. That's kind of where, um, where a lot of problems surfaced years ago, probably about five or six years ago is where agencies were writing citations and, and charges for every violation. And thinking that that's going to going to uh, reduce crime in that area, and it really doesn't. You're actually taking money out of the pockets of people who need it twice as much as anybody else in society. So, in, in a nutshell, it's it's using discretion, and uh, hopefully, this whole defund the police thing will go away, and people will understand you can actually disrupt violence using strategies in police work and not pushing an agenda of sitting in a parking lot, waiting for a 911 call and just not interacting with anybody. Brilliant. Well, I appreciate your, your perspective on that. Now, aside from your work in law enforcement, you also write for Skillset magazine. Um, and I was reading some of the articles, just collecting these kind of examples, because I think when we talk about prejudice in our past, obviously, 
the heroism of some of the African-American soldiers was not heralded as in some way as, you know, some of the other um, military figures. So you wrote about the Buffalo Soldiers, about the Harlem Hellfighters and Bass Reeves. So I'd love to take a little bit of time to kind of educate us on some of some of the heroism that maybe didn't make it into some of the history <laughs> books. Yeah, yeah. So uh, <clears throat> fortunately, that magazine allowed me, I pitched some ideas and they were just like, yeah, we like it. Go with it whatever you got. So I read all the time. And, and those are the type of things that I read about a lot of nonfiction. And I'm running across all these great books and, and resources. I'm like, man, why? This should be like household names. Like people should know this. So like a perfect example is when you talk about Harlem Hellfighters. So I think there was a video game uh, recently, maybe a year or two ago that, that actually even had a character, um, you know, depicting a Harlem Hellfighter. But you go back to World War I and you look at what was going on. The war was, was um, already going on and France was close to losing, right? I mean, they were losing a lot of ground, right, to, to the German forces. America gets involved in one of the first units from America to get deployed in a forward area and fight the enemy was the Harlem Hellfighters, right? It was a, it was a National Guard unit out of Harlem. And it was predominantly African-American males, right? So they get deployed, they get to France and the French soldiers didn't have this hang up on black and white, right? So, you, so these guys in, in the unit from um, Harlem knew like in America, sadly back then everything was divided. And some of these soldiers had actually moved from the South up to the North, you know, for job opportunities. So some of these guys grew up in the South, like completely segregated Jim Crow South, then they get to New York, then they join the military, and they're like, yeah, basically a lot of like, you don't want to go south the way it is down there. But they get to France, and these French soldiers are celebrating, oh, wow, the Americans are here. We're going to, you know, we're trench warfare. We're, we're going to take the fight to the Germans. And they're drinking from the same flask, right? They're drinking alcohol with these, these American soldiers. And the American soldiers are like, wow, in America, you, you, like black and white people aren't going to hang out necessarily like that or definitely not drink after one another. So you see all these levels of, of when you remove these stupid stigmas that we have in society and, and label people a different way, and you just go, okay, here's our, our common problem is we got these German forces advancing. How are we going to beat them, right? So the Harlem Hellfighters get to France. They start getting embedded with this uh, infantry unit in France, and they're introducing jazz to Europe, right? Like, like French people didn't know what jazz was, so they're – so a guy in the unit is introducing jazz to them and they're loving it. So they go to war and not one trench was ever lost by the Harlem Hellfighters. So the German soldiers were like, whoa, like this unit's a little different than everything else we've seen, you know, for, for physical reasons, right? Like you know, darker pigmentation. They're like, oh, uh, damn, they're, they're taking the fight to us. So they label them the Hellfighters because of that. They were like, hey, they're, they're vicious. So they're, they're story after story of that unit and what they had to go through. So you have like one, like, I guess we would call it kind of like an LPOP or like a observation point beyond the trench, like, right, like out into no man's land. And during one of the battles, you have these two Harlem Hellfighters out there. They find themselves surrounded by a German patrol. And what the Germans would do in World War I was like, a lot of times they were clearing trenches with pistols. So these guys are like advancing through the perimeter, coming up close to the Harlem soldiers. Uh, 
the German patrols. They start engaging the enemy and quickly run out of rounds because they're shooting these rifles. Oh, that's another thing. So Harlem Hellfighters are having to use French equipment and they don't speak French. (laughs) So they're trying to learn how to even use this equipment. So these rifles are, they're running out of ammunition very quickly with multiple targets. So it gets down to throwing grenades. Then it gets down to hand to hand. And you've got one soldier who's having to use his rifle to club people over the head. He pulls out this uh, probably about a 12-inch knife, has to put it through a German's uh, face or whatever. I mean, like it's brutal fighting. He eventually gets the Medal of Honor and is recognized by President Roosevelt as one of the most heroic fighters of World War I. And then he ends up going on some tours throughout the U.S. Um, but that whole history, there are several books out there now that, are really great reads on that. Uh, but when you can talk about that to someone and say, hey, listen, this is part of the history we don't talk about or, or that we don't learn about. Like, why is that? Right. And I have actually done like quick sidewalk chats with guys uh, or done presentations in some clubs and stuff or um, schools with teenagers. And I start pulling books out of like my, my little rucksack I'm carrying. And it's like blowing their minds. Like, I'm, first, I'm talking to these guys about gangs and like, hey, this is what's going on. And like you see me as a nerdy guy right now, but we're getting ready to talk about, you know, what's going on in your neighborhood. And now let's switch it to, you know, do you know about the Harlem Hellfighters? Right? So, and I can see guys, their eyes light up and they're like, man, I never heard about this. Or to introduce like the 761st tank battalion, World War II, all black tank is the, like the only all black uh, tanker battalion at the time. And what they did in World War II. And they were like one of the first units to liberate a concentration camp, right? I mean, the, the, the amount of sheer fighting they were going through because they're going head-to-head with these panzer units. And sometimes the tracks will get blown off, right? The tank won't move. They'll, they'll dismount out of the tank and start trying to fight their way with these, you know, uh, grease guns, you know, machine guns and 45s. I mean, just... Absolutely crazy. Then you shift gears and you can and focus on uh, law enforcement, like you mentioned with Bass Reeves, a guy who was born into slavery at the end of the, uh, the mid 1800s. And somehow, some way, he escapes, gets into uh, what's now Oklahoma, the state of Oklahoma. But at that time, it wasn't obviously a state. He hides out there, basically, learns their language of Muskogee, comes back to what is now like the Arkansas state, but comes back to that area after emancipation and becomes a deputy U.S. marshal and is one of the most effective marshals where, and he couldn't, he could not read or write English. He memorized a person's name on an arrest warrant, but he had so many informants. If he's tracking someone down, he knew where to go to find them. He's also one, like one of the first guys that's documented using disguises. So he would literally come into a town and act like he's just some poor farmer and and nobody's paying attention to him. And next thing you know, he's got the drop on a a murder suspect, murder warrant, and he's grabbing them by their throat and putting his pistol in their face. And he was known as like a really deadly shot with the pistol and the rifle. He eventually tracks down like some of the most um, or, or had some of the highest arrest records. And all this stuff is documented through newspaper articles and stuff that you can go back and read. But absolutely amazing background and history. And yet when we talk about the history of policing in America and, 
and people talk about the quote unquote wild, wild west. No one ever talks about that a third of U.S. deputy marshals back then were black males. No one talks about that. There, it's always the stereotype of a white guy or like a Wyatt Earp, you know, the shootout, the OK Corral or something. And you study Bass Reeves and go, this dude got in scores of shootings and, and survived and had to unfortunately kill quite a few people in those shootouts, right? But we don't know about that history. It just kind of gets lost. Well, mainstream society, right? Like people always kept the legend alive, but it took, you know, several people to start writing books and getting serious about it. So it's just, it's one of those things that I'm always interested in those angles of history and, um, you know, just why, why it is that, that American society picks up on one topic, but completely forgets the other, you know, and it may be that maybe, maybe that's the reason we make so many mistakes in, in societies that we don't focus on history. We don't learn, you know, to where some kid is sitting somewhere and says, wow. Uh, you know, I want, I want to know about history. I want to know about the, the baddest cop ever. Right. And then you, you show up a picture of Bass Reeves and they're like, who's this dude? Like, Whoa, what? Like, like they had, you know, uh, cops back then pulling disguises. And I mean, just, it's nuts. It's absolutely nuts. So I, I'm glad that they allow me to write those articles. Uh, and every now and then, you know, uh, um, I'll do some articles on, on other ideas or whatever, but, but most of the stuff that I do is just what I call historical badasses, right? I mean, just people that, you know, uh, female spies in World War II that were blowing up bridges and, um, you know, just, uh, just a lot of stuff like that, that that people don't know about on the mainstream, right? Absolutely. Well, even today, today is um, sadly the anniversary of when Chris Kyle was killed, but you know, and sadly, I'm embarrassed to say I, I saw the post this morning um, from one of my friends, and I've already forgotten the gentleman's name, but there were two people shot by the one guy that they took in that had the mental health problems. And yet all you ever see is rest in peace, Chris Kyle. Well, this other gentleman, you know, was equally of value, but, you know, he's not kind of clickbaity, so he's basically left out of the conversation. Same with Kobe. When he died, there were lots of other people in the helicopter as well. You know, so it's it's kind of what fits the narrative. Not even that way. No, no one's deliberately excluding them. But again, it's like, you know, what's what's the the headline stuff? You reminded me of there's a city here in in um, Orlando called Ocoee, and it, and then um, Wilmington, North Carolina, is another one. Oh, the they, race right? Yeah, they, yeah. They had a horrendous. Both of them had a horrendous thing, and it was both the yeah. uh, led by the Klan. But prior to that. There were there was <laughs> yeah. pretty good integration. You know, there were there yeah. were very successful black business owners that were living side by side with white, you know, and so it just takes yeah. I talk about this all the time. Same with, with drug prohibition. It takes a few vile individuals to, you know, be so power hungry that they will create these conflict and the ripple effect, you know, we're seeing I mean the streets on the, the violence on the streets around the world really come not solely, but predominantly from that one initiative, because after it hit the US, it kind of permeated around the world. But the same with that, you had this community that probably prior to that was just going about their business. And then people start sowing that hatred. The next thing, all the black people are driven out of a city. And then you have a legitimate racial chapter in history. Yeah. Well, when you mentioned <clears throat> Wilmington, that's one of them I talk about with businesses and politics. A lot of people were in local government, like like black men were running for offices and holding um, 
positions of influence like that in Wilmington. And you're right. You didn't have that. And that's a threat to the Klan at that time. So you get the race riots going. And, and then you get like into 1919 with the Red Summer, where it's basically the highest level of lynchings throughout the South. The answer to that, a lot of times, was local law enforcement would make an arrest. The lynch mob shows up and, and physically like forces that one deputy, that one officer is guarding the, the jail there. And they take that, that prisoner and lynch them, right? So if all of that's going on and that fear is there, that's how some, some small organization like the Klan can actually instill fear and try to control that population. Where, in fact, prior to that, if you have people living, you know, side by side or at least, you know, uh, functioning where people have their businesses and that sort of thing, that's, that's clan, the Klan was a terrorist organization. That's what they did. So once they, once the few people came in and really sowed that hate, then it's almost like the image is, oh, this is all black versus white, right? And then from there, you get that, that history of it. And so then when, when people learn about it and go, wow, I, I didn't know actually that there were, there were so many gains at that point like that and how that was, you know, fought against by people like the Klan or other, you know, organizations that, that are moving behind, uh, you know, the public's eye or whatever. But like back to the lynching thing, like Frank Hamer, um, he was a Texas Ranger. He's the guy that kind of is given credit for killing Bonnie and Clyde. Right. But you go back and look at his history. He was part of the Texas Rangers when they would come into towns in Texas and protect inmates from the lynch mobs. It's like you would literally have one ranger show up with a, with a Thompson machine gun and stand on the steps of the courthouse and let the whole town know, tell the lynch mob to come on down here. <laughs> like, you know, I got multiple magazines and I'm going to shoot and kill everybody that comes down here because this prisoner's not going. So there are stories of like Frank Hamer smuggling out prisoners out of local courthouses, you know, or, or jail, local jails and protecting them until the trial, you know, so that the lynch mobs could not get them. Right. So it's that whole idea of, uh, you know, the stereotype of black versus white. It's like, well, well, time out. There's also a history of white law enforcement officers standing up and protecting, you know, black citizens from getting lynched, you know, or like he went into one town and became a town marshal and took out what they had was the white man's union. That was like their local version of the Klan. And they were terrorizing black citizens. And when he showed up, he snatched up the first guy that he saw that was part of that white union. The guy had a long beard. And the story goes, he grabs a guy by the beard and slams him face first right into the street and tells everybody, basically, I'm, in, I'm the law here and you're not going to terrorize citizens. And he would go out and actually shoot target practice and show people what a great shot he was to let them know, I'm going to put somebody in the ground if you terrorize the citizens. So when he eventually left and, and went back in uh, to Texas Rangers, I think at that time, the town pulled their money and built a statue in his name because he had brought peace that was where the black community is being terrorized by this white man's union. He came in one dude with a gun and basically, you know, like walking tall, he set the tone. Those are stories that, you know, that that town remembers and that statue is there. But it's like the, the history that we have to kind of celebrate of people who decide I'm going to protect you know, this town or this city and racism is not going to dominate and you're not going to come in with your terrorist organization. Like we're going to stand up to you. 
So that's one, another reason that I, I really think that if we focus on history and read it and learn it and go, okay, because you can get motivated by that. You can say, hey, I, this person was brave enough to do that. We can still do that in these towns and cities. Like we can still stand up to this, you know. Uh, and, and when those organizations start to surface, we should fight them. You know what I mean? Like we should realize and that they can be defeated, right? That was, that's how the Klan survived for so long. People thought it's this invisible empire that we can't destroy. And yet a lot of white agents from the FBI were able to destroy them from within. And that's a whole another story, but those things should be celebrated too, that, Hey, it's not just always black versus white. It's this idea of courage and, and terrorism. Like, Hey, how are we going to fight this? Absolutely. I had uh, Ron Stallworth on the show, the the Black Klansman. And if you've heard that oh, story. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so that's obviously a yeah. funny story as well. But one thing that the I'd love to get your perspective on quickly before we go to some some closing questions. I've never understood this. So you talked about um, 19, that's, yeah, 1919 being a very deadly year. 1918 is when World War II came to a conclusion. And we had incredible heroism from a black soldiers then fast forward to world war ii the tuskegee airmen have i got that right i think yeah um yeah. and then the the tank battalion that you refer to you've got all these members i mean you look at some of the the uh the british photos and there's a <laughs> there was a funny meme of um it was uh one of the indian um spitfire fighters and the the, the title says bloody indians coming here you know, killing Nazis instead of like taking our jobs. It was a tongue in cheek <laughs> thing. But that's the point is the world was fighting evil at that point. And of course, let me be very clear. A lot of German people had no idea, you know, the, the, what was really going on behind closed doors. Um, but so you have World War II, you have the ticker tape parades, everyone comes back. And then in the fifties is, you know, really some of our darkest chapters again, when it comes to racism, especially in the South. And you had the lynchings again. How do you explain? As we touched on earlier, all of us unite against a common cause to, again, that evil being able to proliferate through communities. Yeah, it's uh, you would think that because it's basically the military integrated before American society did. So just like you said, you know, you had units that were by Vietnam, the infantry units and stuff were, were integrated black and white together. But there were still states in the South that everything was segregated. So. It, it does baffle me that, that as a country, we could not have recognized back then uh, when people come back from war and go, wow, you know, this is kind of stupid. We're divided by pigment, you know, skin color. When really overseas, they just they just put it, put it to the test and showed us skin color doesn't matter. You know, everyone needs to come together, fight the common enemy and come back. We, we should have been able as a country to move fast forward and get past all of that. But then again, it's also probably really uh, reassuring for citizens to be able to say, this group is lower than me, right? You know, or lower than I am. And therefore, I get to keep my cushion job as long as I can keep this group down. They're not competition or whatever. And that's when you start to study how racism stays the way it is because it's beneficial to a certain group, you know. So as we're moving forward as a country, that's why it, I still can't wrap my brain around people saying how much division racially that we have now in this country when we've made so many advances. And, and I've talked to a lot of people who have told me that's their same opinion. Like I, I know people who own companies, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they're like, I own a company. No one, no one is holding me back because of the color of my skin. Like I just went out there and did it. 
and and I, I know a dude this that has felony convictions, blackmail with dreadlocks to his his waist and a and a big watch, nice flashy car. And he always jokes about that. And he says, you know, yeah, I dress like a stereotypical drug dealer, right? Like he's like that. I don't care. That's my style. He's like, but I I run the best business I do, and my customers love me. And he goes into rural areas with his employees. And they're they're doing commercial detailing vehicles and stuff, right? Like this guy. So a long story with him, but it's cool to get his perspective because he stopped listening to that. He stopped listening to that and that the input that people were telling him that he's a convicted felon, you got dreadlocks, nobody's gonna hire you, you know. And it was a white man, it was like 50 years old, was the first guy that hired him right out of prison. Was like, Hey, I need you to work. Are you gonna come to work? And it, and if you work out. And you're and you're a really good employee. I'm going to hire more guys with felonies because I want to break that cycle. Because this guy tells a great story of like his brain was like, oh man, this dude ain't going to hire me. It's a white guy. He's, he's not going to take a chance on me. And he did. And then when he when he told him, you're doing this job, but you're also doing it to to help other people behind you when they come out. I'm going to hire more people. So he would tell me, you know, like, hey. There were days when I didn't want to show up on time. Or there were days when I didn't want to want to work hard. I was getting tired, you know. But I knew if I do a great job, the next guy coming out gets hired. He's going to have the opportunities that I have, right? That I mean, that's like those stories. They're everywhere. So it, it's and and he and I'll text and stuff. It's like some days he has bad days. He's like, man, I'm I'm feeling it today. Like this is bad, you know. When a news story hits or something, I'm like, man, just hang in there. Like you and I are cool, right? You got, you're making strides. I'm making strides. Like, don't, don't let this stuff bring you down. Like, this is not what it is. It it comes down to the individual and and your efforts and what you're doing. Like, I just, I believe that the news is hyped up this racism and racist society stuff. And just, it it, it just, I can't, I don't, I don't understand. It's nuts. But here we are 2022. And to some people, they still believe that this country is is racist and and that these opportunities are not out there when they they are. It's there. Go out there, go, get at it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like set your goals and go do it. Absolutely. Well, that's a great place to transition. Thank you so much. We've chatted for two and a half hours already. Um, I want to go to some closing questions so I can let you go. Um, the first one I love to ask. Is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be pertaining to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Yeah, it's a good one. So uh, probably one of the one of the best ones for like uh, history and race um, is, and I don't want to mess up the title, but I want to say it's Shadows of Youth. And it's about the civil rights movement and and directly follows the story of SNCC. They they pronounce it SNCC back in the day, but it was Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Starts out in 1960. College students get together. They're all in a gymnasium at a college, and they start forming up how they're going to do peaceful protest. So oftentimes we don't hear the story behind the scenes of the movement itself. So as they form, this is all college students forming this movement in 1960. It carries on throughout, you know, uh, marches all throughout the South. And part of what they would do is actually train after hours. Like when these businesses, sometimes white-owned businesses, the business owner would shut the business down at night, pull the blinds down, and in the back room where the supplies were, he would allow or they would allow the 
college kids to train to do sit-ins. So you would have the, the elders come in there and tell them, I'm going to hit you in the back of the head. I'm going to call you all these terms. We're, we're going to spit on you. We're going to push you out of the chair, but you can't fight back. All right. So they're training and, and, and instilling discipline in these college students to show them, hey, this is how things are going to be. And that changed the country. Right. I mean, there was these all these movements. That book gets in such detail with all these members that you get to kind of understand part of the civil rights movement that we don't hear about. And, I, and I'm not disrespecting Dr. King when I say this, but the civil rights movement was already in effect. It had been that there was there were movements pushing towards that before Dr. King was in front of television cameras. Right. So there there's so much more to learn about that. And by reading those books, you kind of understand like D- Diana Nash or Diane Nash and, and Bob Zellner and Julian Bond, Mayor Marion Barry, right, from Washington, D.C. Everybody kind of makes a lot of jokes about his addiction problems when he was a mayor. But when he was doing his graduate work in college, he was one of the founding members in this program, you know, in this or in this um, organization. So that's a really good one. Um, there is. Um, probably like one of the, like, here's a great book for people to read. Like if you want to know about the background and firefighting and all the different aspects of it, but taught at least to me, when I read it, there's a book called smoke jumper, right? Cause I didn't know a whole lot about, about that history. I don't know anything really about firefighters. So don't hate my guts, but I just, I didn't know. Well, I read this book. It's by Jason Ramos, right? So he's a, he's a smoke jumper, but he tells throughout this whole book, he tells his story. Growing up being a skater, punk rock kid, how he got involved in the firefighting. And then he tells all these different facets of levels of firefighting, like hot shots and uh, smoke jumpers and all this stuff. So great book, very quick, easy read. But he also tells the history of it. So then you get to learn about the triple nickels, right? Like this, this airborne unit, parachuting soldiers that were all black soldiers. And it's part of the airborne history. But it's also in the book about you know smoke jumpers and how... Triple Nichols, which was the the airborne unit, how they they were some of the first um, that evolution, you know, of airborne training, and then how it affects smoke jumpers. So that's one that I always recommend to people because for me, it was a great read. And then I was like, I had no clue. You know, I didn't I had how would I know that firefighters work with the CIA in Vietnam doing you know airdrops? It's all covered in the book as well as his stuff and and. Um, the history of smoke jumpers and stuff. So that, that's a really good one. Um, just to interject for a second, Jason was on the show, episode 219. I just looked it up to make sure I got it right. <laughs> there so, you go. Yeah. yeah. So you can hear you know, just, all those stories in there. I, I, well, I didn't mean to steal his thunder, but I also didn't want someone to go. Uh, book on smoke jumpers, what's that? Because I love to do to death, man. We talk a lot. We, I, I, This, for people who are out there, if you read a book and you love that book, reach out to the author, like tell them that, like I sent him an email cause it's in the back of the book. And from that email, we started conversations and talks and stuff. It's just, and he does a lot more than just that. I mean, that, that guy's a, like a, a gear guru. Like he just, he knows a lot about a lot of stuff. So we've talked about finding missing persons, his ability with drones. Anyway, very cool guy. I would just say you find a book you like, reach out to that author and, and tell him how good it is. But yeah, so he's, he's a good deal. Um, probably, uh, if you like, man, I got a bunch of books here. So if you like, um, like I mentioned earlier about the 761st, there's a book called Brothers in Arms. And it's actually written by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. 
the former NBA basketball player. And so he wrote member the member of the Game of Death cast. Oh yeah, yeah, Bruce Lee. I don't movie. know what that is. <laughs> was- oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You're right. Yeah, okay. I know um, more about book, martial arts yeah. than I do basketball. So <laughs> okay, well then, hey, that that book is crazy. It's very, very good. Like he. And he'll also, if you read the book, it goes into like how he actually knew one of the members of that tank unit, but he had no clue. The guy ended up being a cop when he got out. But that's a great, that's a great book. Um, there's one called uh, Wolves at the Door, and that's Virginia Hall. And she was, she actually was in both the British uh, SOE during World War II, like the spy agency. And she was also with the OSS in America. She was like the deadliest spy that uh, both branches had or both uh, organizations had. But she had lost her leg in a, um, or lost her foot in a, she was <laughs> hunting with a shotgun or was, was traversing a fence with a shotgun and it went off and she lost her foot. Well, she didn't tell anybody that when she joined or was recruited to the SOE to become a spy. And so she basically did all these missions with only one foot. She had a, uh, like a wooden prosthetic uh, foot that she used. But this lady would got inserted into France and build a resistance network. So, so when people talk about spies and female spies in World War II, it's always they somehow seduce somebody, you know, and steal these secrets. Now, we're talking about someone who spoke like three languages. She got into the community, built these resistance networks, smuggled out downed pilots, you know, by creating an asylum front. So it would be, uh, you know, uh, allied spy or allied pilots would get shot down. Her network would find out where they were, smuggle them into this asylum. And then if the Nazis came and checked that facility, that person could just sit in the corner and they would be like, oh, this person suffers from whatever illness he can't speak or he can't, you know, whatever. So Nazis didn't pay any attention to it. And the whole time they're smuggling these allied pilots through these networks to get them back into Spain and, and to other areas to get them back to their countries. And then eventually she goes proactive uh, prior to D-Day and, and they're blowing up train tracks and attacking Nazi uh, outposts and stuff and you know, machine gun shooting. And I just, the book is, is phenomenal. That's one I always recommend to people, especially when you talk about females in combat arms or how society's changing and females, you know, are police officers and they're doing all these dangerous um, you know, duties in society, and you go back and go, where well, World War II, this was going on. But because it, they were so effective at what they did, they also kind of took a vow like, hey, we're not going to tell people how we were because the enemy doesn't expect these women in these small towns in France to <laughs> be practicing uh, demolitions or, or sending back messages about troop movements and stuff. So I get why they kept that history secret, but it's great now because there's a ton of those books, but that one in particular gets into a lot of detail about someone who just did some incredible missions for both of these agencies. And I think uh, we should know their history. And definitely if there's some 12 year old girl out there, who's like, I want to jump out of planes and, and be a spy or be a green beret or whatever, like, yeah, read that history, get motivated about it and then go tackle your goals. You know, like, like there's, that's part of evolving. So I've got a ton of books. I always post a, I try to post a book or two every day, like in my story on Instagram. Um, so, uh, and, and any other topics you pick, I've probably got some more. 
Um, but some of those come come to the top of my head. Well, that's another parallel as well. As you came out of World War II, where women were filling every traditionally male role back at home, and then the 1950s, they're in the in the kitchen and you know, just being all girly again. It's like again, how did we get there? From I forget her name now. What was the 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 woman character that you know had a wrench in her hand and you know she was oh yeah Rosie the River yes Rosie River yeah, how yeah, do we yeah. go from Rosie the River to apple pie in about five years it just it it blows my mind of course men and women should be cooking and cleaning and everything but it didn't it reverted back to this super you know uh, nauseating sexual stereotype within you know five four short years and again as with the racial element that blows my mind that we didn't emerge from world war ii with a more sexual quality um kind of philosophy as well yeah yeah and uh tony morrison who's like one of my favorite writers for fiction and she said in, in interviews before that you know when she was uh an editor i believe and then she got into writing but when she was an editor if i remember the story correctly she's saying that people would openly say to her well, this person, this guy, you know, her her uh, cohort is a, a peer at, at where she's working. Well, they deserve a higher raise because they have a family to feed, right? And her thing was, uh, I have kids too. Like, you know what I mean? Like, why wouldn't I get a raise? Like, but because of those stereotypes, they're seeing her as this woman, this mother. Like, uh, or they probably had ten other reasons why they were doing stupid stuff like that. But the idea of men or women or whatever it does like the great thing nowadays is like you can just include everybody uh and just feel like pay people what they're worth take care of people and let them do what they do when people do the job they enjoy you get you know a better product or you get a better service out of them so just like that during world war ii it was like there were these women who had access to get into these countries because of their language background or their their culture maybe they grew up there and people were smart enough to say, yeah, like, let's train them up and let's let them parachute in. Stop thinking that they can only like, you know, work in the kitchen or something stupid. Like, yeah. I mean, and when I'm saying like training, like the men and women were training together, practicing to, to cut throats, practicing to set up demolitions, like machine gun training. It was all the same. Parachute in and build your resistance. I mean, you're right that if we could have evolved as a country after that, we probably wouldn't have gone through all the the problems that we did have because people would have said, oh, okay, this, this does make sense, you know? So I, I don't know. It's, it's interesting how things revert back like that and they don't carry on. It know? is. It is indeed. All right. Well then just quickly, what about uh, movies or documentaries? Any of those you love? Oh, so there's, um, I end up going down. I watch a lot of documentaries on music. So like there's <laughs> There's a recent one, and I forget the name of it now, but it's ska, like ska music. So it's a cool documentary. It kind of focuses on the third wave of ska in the 90s in America, but you also get to hear some of the history of ska, the second wave of the two-tone era in England, and then going all the way back to the history of ska in Jamaica, you know, pre-reggae. But um, there uh, there is a really good documentary, and it's several years old, on the clan and it basically focuses on a guy named Bob Jones who was a clan leader and he kind of moved up through the ranks but that and I apologize I cannot remember the name of the documentary but that documentary focuses on how the clan was destroyed from within because the leaders were greedy and they were just trying to basically build a pyramid scheme and and draw money off of people but 
Um, there's another documentary called, I believe it's Let It Burn is, is the name of it. And it is out of Philadelphia, if I remember right. Uh, see, the Philadelphia Pittsburgh, but I think it's Philadelphia in uh, the late 70s, maybe. But there's an organization, the movement, and it's people that basically want to be left alone and do their own thing. Um, but there was also like this militant aspect to it. They were carrying weapons and it was mostly black males who were saying, you know, we don't want to be part of this society. We don't want to, we don't want to basically be oppressed anymore by racist cops, that sort of thing. Well, it, it, the documentary does a great job of showing the escalation until eventually warrants are taken out to do a raid and how that raid goes deadly. And I don't want to give away too much, but there's a reason it's called let it burn. You know, it's, it, it deals with what happens once a fire starts during a raid, kind of like uh, Waco. which could also, yeah, I was about to say, just like in Waco, how early on the stories may come out of who set the fire, how it got set. And then to this day, probably people are still arguing that, but, but that documentary was, was a great example on, on that um, operation to also show that there was racism going on. There was still obviously white cops that were abusing their power, but there was also white cops that stepped forward and tried to break that wall of silence too. So it was, it was a good one. I don't know. I can't remember who made it, um, but that's one that without stealing or giving away the end, when someone watches it, it does open the door to what do you do in this situation? I don't want to give it away, but uh, it, that's that's a good one to check out, especially because you're you're incorporating a fire, uh, police, and uh, you know social movements and and armed citizens and what it when it escalates. Um, there is what's another one? Oh, uh, the Bones Brigade uh, for all the skaters out there. Stacy Peralta, who kind of formed the Bones Brigade back in the eighties. Kind of, you know, that's your Tony Hawk skater, your Steve Caballero, you know, Powell Peralta skateboards. That's a good documentary to kind of show the skating culture. Stacy Peralta also made a documentary um, on Bloods and Crips in Los Angeles. Does a phenomenal job of actually showing the history of racial strife in LA. What happens when middle class, you know, uh, you know, has jobs and they're moving up in management, and then all of a sudden the jobs go away you know, factories start shutting down and then the evolution of bloods and crips and then the, the crack epidemic and how both of those groups kind of rose to power. Really, really, really good documentary. And I think it's just called bloods and crips or maybe, uh, bloods and crips in America. I think like I, but, I saw that because again, I think they, weren't they detailing how prior cocaine was kind of a yuppie drug and it was very expensive, yes. but after that yeah. crash, the crack cocaine allowed, you know, sadly allowed the, the poorer communities to also join the addiction yeah. <laughs> epidemic. Yeah. And, and a lot of people now are kind of, uh, sort of weaponizing the, the, um, judicial, uh, um, I'm losing my train of thought when the crack epidemic hit, there was a reason that the sentencing structures, structured sentencing was so severe when dealing with crack cocaine. It was a push against the violence to try to break the violence. But then when people would do studies and correlations and go, well, someone can possess powder cocaine and whatever they get a year, but someone possesses crack cocaine, they get five years. And then when you look at who's getting arrested for that, it, it's skewed and it looks like, like for Los Angeles, it would have been black males because 
Bloods and Crips were selling crack and it just hit that community and it, it just like it did in you know, a lot of other cities. They were poisoning so their then, own. That's the irony. Well, 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 I mean, when you look at that and you say, okay, then, then it must be something to do with race. It must be a judicial system that's trying to control a population or oppress a population. When in fact, if, and I could be wrong, but I'm not because I've heard a lot of people speak out on it. The push was from the communities, we want stiffer penalties. We don't want drug kingpins pushing crack cocaine because people were getting shot and killed over this. So yeah, the, the push was get people locked up that are selling crack cocaine and that the break this cycle of violence. That's where all those stringent punishments came in. And plus then you're removing the decision sometimes from the judge for sentencing. So if you did by chance have a racist white judge, he or she, whatever, couldn't give a young black male life in prison if the sentencing was only five to 10 years or something. So it was a way to kind of check that too. Yeah. But, but that documentary also talks about the um, riots that erupted like during the Watts riots and kind of the history of that stuff. So I've actually played that documentary in some of my classes so we could talk about, this is kind of what happens in society when there's a power void and a generation that had jobs and, and everything's moving forward. A younger generation can join something and, and, and completely go off the rails, which is what was going on in a lot of the neighborhoods. So, and that's a good, was it called Bloods and Crips? I think it was. I think like Crips and Bloods in America, I think you might. Yeah, something like that. But then what was also great was that you saw some people that were sadly in their 50s and still gang members. And then obviously you had a lot of people, some of whom were wounded, obviously all of whom had lost multiple friends that had come out and were now advocating and trying to, you know, trying to be mentors in the community. Um, so yeah, but I thought it was really well told. I think it was done in like the late nineties too. It's not, it's not a recent documentary. I don't think it was. No, uh-uh. Yeah. And that's, and, and for me, like, I think if I remember right, I first saw it because of Stacy Peralta, like, you know, just the, the skate background, like, Whoa, I didn't know he was making a documentary. It was so, to me, it was so well researched and made. I was like, man, that's really impressive. Like I just liked it. Um, but yeah, that one, um, like I said, I'll play that in class, but to explain to people, like there's all these different facets of stuff going on. And like you said, Hey, here's a 50 year old guy who's telling you the history of it. And like, we, like if, if you're in the South, you know, we're not, we don't have multiple generations of gang members. We kind of need to, to learn from their history. Like, okay. You know, when I'm teaching like other agencies or other people in my class, it's like, if your town is smaller than your capital or smaller than your larger cities, but your murder rate is as high as those cities. Like you've got some problems in your, in your city. What is that? Is it because of lack of jobs, a lack of opportunity? Well, you can kind of see what happens when all of a sudden within one generation, a factory closes down or, or an industry goes away or whatever. What is that next generation going to do if those families stay in that neighborhood or stay in that, that area? So, and that's, you know, opens up a whole different can of, uh, of problems or whatever, but some of those are, are really good documentaries. There was, um, there was another one that I watched on uh, Vince Vaughn is the, is the narrator. And I can't remember the name of it, but it is on the murals that were painted in Ireland throughout the 70s and 80s, I believe. And it kind of tells the story of the battles that were going on and the bombings and the IRA and stuff, but it's all kind of told through these murals that were painted and kind of the history lessons in that. And for some reason, I, I can't remember the name of it. I was, I was actually telling a guy the other day, he's a 
like another punk rock cop, you know, we were talking, I was like, Hey, check out this, <laughs> this documentary. And I couldn't remember the name of it either. And then if I remember right, the name of the documentary is like so obscure, you wouldn't make the two associations, but, but that one also has a really good soundtrack with like the clash, stiff little fingers, the pogues, like it's got a lot of like, like really great punk rock sound. But. Well, there's no, no better example of the insanity of division than, you know, the Ireland, you know, issue. And I'm saying not the Irish people, but I always think of myself as the four countries. That's where I'm from. Ireland, England, Scotland, okay. Wales. Because, I mean, there's two rocks in the middle of freaking nowhere. We're all totally <laughs> integrated and, you know, interbred. And then, you know, you separate whether you're part of the big rock or the little rock. Then you separate if you're Catholic or Protestant. Then you separate if you're loyalist. You know what I mean? And it's just, and <laughs> yeah. you've got Southern Ireland underneath looking, wondering why the neighbors upstairs are making so much noise. And, you know, there's no, we're all the same. And that division and the bloodshed, you know, and then the, again, the vicious circle of the British military going in who are trying to stay alive, you know, the, the opposition and, you know, the occupation, perceived occupation causing more issues. And yeah, it's just like the Middle East. And I hear so yeah. many people say we should have gone in, we should have done what needed to be done and we should have left. And when we stayed, you know, we just made more and more enemies. But yeah, I mean, Ireland is a perfect example. To me, we're, you know, we're all one thing. There's no name for England, Ireland, Scotland, and all of, all of Ireland, Scotland, and Wales. But to me, that's where I'm from initially, you know, <laughs> right. to draw little imaginary lines is, is just insane. We're tiny enough as it is. So anyway, all right. Well, then the next closing question, is there a person that you would recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Oh, that's a good one. Um, Mm. There are several people that I want to get to talk and come forward. Uh, they're they're very much like me. They're kind of nervous about putting their names out there or, or talking about things. Um, so I won't put I won't put them out there yet. I will send you their names. I'll also talk to them about hey, because because I have done a podcast in, in the past that was basically focused on like just like punk rock cops, you know. So we just got on and talked about growing up in a punk rock scene and, and becoming cops. And because we thought it would be fun to talk to each other. And what we realized is from that, um, that episode, a lot of people came forward like, Hey, I'm a cop in wherever small town USA. And I'm also a punk. And I kind of feel like an outsider within my own agency. Cause and for some people, they wouldn't even admit that they listen to punk rock because it, it was, it was getting uh, such a bad rap, I guess. You know, so if I can get some of them to come forward, um, or some people that I know have done some stuff and, Oh, you know what? Let me back up someone. I don't know if you've had him on here or not. His Instagram handle is officer one eight seven. And I, and I want to say it spelled out, um, like just the number one, then spelled out eight and then the number seven. Okay. But he's actually, it's got, uh, Paul Lozada, he, he, and I, if I mispronounce that, I apologize. Um, but, um, he wrote a book about his background. He's a San Francisco cop, like in the heyday of, uh, drugs, gangs. And if I've got it right, he's the most decorated officer in San Francisco PD's history. Um, so I've talked to him uh, on the phone. We've messaged back and forth a little bit. Uh, I just got his book in the mail, but like his Instagram handle, like he'll, he'll post stuff. Like he posts his stuff about um, Suge Knight and some of the stuff going on in San Francisco back then. Like you had mentioned Tupac and uh, Biggie earlier. 
So his post sometimes he'll post some of the historic stuff or he'll he might mention about some of the arrests or some of the shootings. Um, he'll post like old pictures from when he was uh, playing closed units and stuff. So I would say, cause I mean, he's out now he's, he's, you know, got his book. He's out there. If you could get him on there, I think probably you'll hear some good stories and some good perspectives of how you can actually, like we've talked about break up cycles of violence and, and just be like a legit hard charging, you know, crime fighter and not sitting in a parking lot daydreaming. So I would say him, like, like if you could get him, I kind of want to hear him on the show. So Perfect. All right. I'll put, I'll put him at the top of the list. The others I'll work on behind, behind the scenes. All right. Let's make it happen. Perfect. All right. But then the very last question before we make sure people know where to find you and where to find your writing as well. Um, what do you do to decompress? Oh, read, I read, I write uh, the articles, but also I'm working on some fiction. So I'll be uh, hopefully publishing some, not me publishing, but a publisher some novels. So I've got like five novels kind of outlined, rough ideas, all different types of stuff. Um, not just like police work. Uh, but, but then also doing some podcasts and I'm getting into, uh, Jason Piccolo. He's got the protectors podcast. Now, uh, I've been on his show before we've, we've, you know, shared a lot of information and I've co-hosted some shows with him, but we've kind of, we're just now developing a podcast we'll do together that moving forward for me, when you're saying decompressing, like that's what I enjoy doing is talking to people now that I can kind of put, put my information out there a little bit more. Um, uh, that'll become a forward. And I enjoy that. Like he and I have already been sharing ideas about design, design work, how we're going to like book people, what the format's going to be. So for me, since I don't drink or anything, I, I exercise, I try to eat healthy, but I don't always do that. Um, but, because sometimes I work such long hours doing the assignment, current assignment I do, I have to balance that with stuff that I enjoy on my days off. And so it's always reading, working on writing my novel or working on an article or doing something like that with podcasts or really behind the scenes networking, introducing people through like Instagram to just like you were saying, like guests, like I may shoot you a, a message and say, hey, check out this person. They would be great for a podcast. And then link the two of you up you know, that to me, that feels good. Like, Hey, I'm helping other people out too. Like, so I just, I do that for the most part. That's what, that's what I'm doing on my days off. Beautiful. So I'm sure people are fascinated. Where's the best place to find you on social media? And do you have any kind of contact information if they do want to take one of your gang classes? Yeah. So the only, the only social media I've ever had my entire life is Instagram. And it's only about two years old, maybe, but it's B B dot C dot Sanders. So it's just BC Sanders. But I've been told if you don't put the dots in there, obviously nobody can find it, but, <laughs> but it's just B dot C dot Sanders. And like I said, I on on the actual Instagram, like handle, like I don't, I don't post a whole lot of stuff in, in my feed about police work. Right. Um, so sometimes in my stories, I may, I may post a picture or something, or I did post something about, uh, cop killer hand sign, you know, just to talk about that a little bit, but, but if someone is interested in like training or they got questions, just shoot a direct message to me. I'll answer whatever questions, the training aspect, I still kind of do through um, a college right now. And it's all kind of localized. My plan here in the next maybe year is to take it on the road, or I've got a buddy of mine. We're actually looking at doing stuff 
through a Zoom platform or something where maybe we can hold some training to multiple people throughout the the U.S., kind of like what we're doing here, but just um, to be able to do it to where we can reach other jurisdictions that we couldn't necessarily get to all in, in a year. So some of that will be coming forward. And I'll put more information out about that as we develop it. But for now, definitely anybody's got questions or if there's enough um, interest in an area that they are in their jurisdiction, then we'll travel there and put on some training uh, for them locally. Brilliant. Well, BC, I just want to say thank you so much. We've been chatting for three hours now. Um, and it's been amazing. I mean, again, you know, yeah. I love these long form conversations. I love it when the guest is passionate about what they do. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and your background and your unique journey that you've been on, whether it's the, you know, straight edge punk scene or whether it's, you know, your love of, of history and obviously some of the stories you've told now and then how that applies to the community and some of the tensions that we see. Um, it's been incredible. So I just want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. Yeah, thank you for having me on, buddy. Anytime you want to talk, man, hit me up.